Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I have a two-and-a-half-hour episode for you, and in it, we discuss America's number one fear book, which is The Immortal Hulk number 4 by Al Ewing and Joe Bennett, X-Men Legacy and the Legacy of Mike Carey, Mr. Miracle 10, Superman 76 from 1952 featuring the first Silver Age team-up with Batman, as well as the high-concept remix from 2006 of Superman Batman Annual Number 1 by Joe Kelly, Ed McGinnis, Ryan Otley, and others. And we also discuss The Seeds by David Aja and Anne Nascenti, the remarkable graphic novel Sabrina by Nick Dornasso, and, believe me when I say this, much, much more. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan, hello. I have, I have a question. Yes. We we start these, these podcasts uh, by starting the call, right? Yes. And every time... That we start the call, like it rings and it goes do 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 boop boop do 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 boop boop, and then when I answer every single time, it sounds like you were suddenly surprised and playing with your headset. Um, is that actually happening, or is is it like is there another noise that I'm just hearing as you be like, oh god, he's answered. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, actually, this is really a, a good question. Hold on for one very long second while I ignore you and run run somewhere else and try and pretend this never happened. Hold on. This is some wonderful sort of weird <laughs> performance art shit happening there. <laughs> Graham McMillan, hello. Jeff Lester, what's going on? I was going to pretend that never happened. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, you know what it is? Is Honestly, Graham, uh, there's two things. One thing is sometimes the call goes on, the boom, 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 whoop, whoop, goes on for a very long time. Yes. And sometimes yes. it's very short. Uh, this is true. This one was a little shorter. Uh, but... So there's that. There's the fact that, and this was someone recently took me to task over the phone on this, where I sound surprised to hear from someone, and as the person put it, they're like, don't don't you have me in your um, phone directory? Like, don't you know who this is when I'm calling? Does, doesn't my name come up? And I'm like... Wow, who is giving you shit about that? Oh... Uh, I don't want to tell stories. I, no, no, at school, no, no, but... yeah, no like, let's not let's not address this. I guess what I'm saying is that seems like a weirdly um, passive aggressive thing to say. Oh, completely. Because I, I, I wasn't saying it in the sense of like, Jeff, are you surprised? No, 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 I no, think no, 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 no. Like it all sounds like you're yeah. you're still putting on your head. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. So anyway, so that's factor two, which is apparently when I I'm like, hey, like I'm always like, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm always surprised sounding, which I, is I always my... thought I was just like. Upbeat excitedness. That's what I thought too, but apparently passive aggressive jerk uh, thought otherwise, so I've been rethinking my stand on these things. And finally, this headset is, um, 
probably okay. I mean, but it is not great for me with my beard. I've never found a position oh, from it. That's that's true, because you have a sizable beard. I've got this sizable beard, and so frequently after we edit the podcast, there will be times where you're talking, and it sounds, I literally, it sounds like I'm smoking in the background. You know that sort of crackle oh, no. from the cigarette yeah, when I, someone's inhaling? No, I, always, I always just assume that you're playing your beard. No, no, I'm I'm not touching my beard I at always, all. I always thought you were just scratching your beard a lot. Mm-mm, mm-mm, no, it, it, it's, it's how close the goddamn beard is to the headset. And because it's a, everything's a set length, I, I'm always trying to figure out the, the maximum amount of distance I can try and keep the microphone away from my goddamn face. And so I always have that moment where I'm always trying to adjust it and fiddle with it and try and find a place that looks right. So that's probably why it sounds like I'm always fiddling and put or and or putting on my headset because I am fiddling with it and that's why. See, we start off this episode with <laughs> a piece of a learning opportunity for everyone. <laughs> It is, and there's going to be so much learning in this episode, Graham. This is just going to be our little schoolhouse rock episode, because, I mean, I don't know. I Maybe not, but... I was wh- going to say, what are you planning? Well, I've, I've got a couple of comics to talk about, man. And... Oh, I, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily know if you should. Also, there's another thing that you should learn, which is, uh, as you may know, and I don't really even know if we tipped the listeners off last week. I feel like we usually do, but... My nieces came over for a sleepover. They're now eight and six. Uh, and fortunately, thank God, the six-year-old is still, like, tiny. But, um, you know, we did all the usual stuff that we do. And then after they left, the next day, I was like, oh, man, my, my back's a little, little sore, a little sore. It is oh, no. only proceeded to get more sore as... Uh, the week has gone on, which is oh no, because I checked in with you at the beginning of the week and mm-hmm. you told me it was sore. Yeah, but I, I didn't. I honestly thought that honestly you would have recovered. Yeah, me too, me too. So it makes me wonder if I really strained something or I did something like there's something in my day to day habits that aren't quite jibing with what I did. So we're trying to figure out all sorts of stuff. But so what you're saying is you're in incredible pain. No, no. The great thing is, is I'm not incredible pain because I'm a little bit drugged up on, and this is always exciting, expired medication that I had sitting around from the last time I had back pain. So literally, <laughs> I took... Well, at least you know it's for back pain. Well, true. It's for back pain. So that, that helps. But oh, hold on. Here comes the noise. Uh, but it is also the... the um, it's also it's, really wait, expired. Is so. your medication you opening a can of beer? It is. It is, Graham. <laughs> the best medication of all. Like, how does that expire exactly? <sighs> you don't want to know, Graham. Don't want to know. I know you're not much of a drinker, so it doesn't really come up for you, but believe me, it's better that you don't know. So all of which is to say, um, if I seem even loopier than usual partway through the podcast, or even maybe even now, that's that that could be a factor. I don't I don't know. We'll have to see. It's boarding well already, isn't it? It's it's like all the ingredients in the mixing pot to make sure this is the most successful. By which I mean one of us will be crying episode ever. So I'm I'm. Uh, and who knows who it might be? Because Jeff, I got to tell you, you've got a bad uh, back. 
today at lunch, whatever I ate made me like terribly sick. Oh no, Graham, yes. what? Oh Jesus! And it was a it was a chicken sandwich. It wasn't even like anything weird. Dude, chicken, uh, chicken is the enemy. No offense, well, uh, but like if you read no, up on it, you know. Well, Jeff, I love you. <laughs> But when you when anyone says something like if you read up on it, you know, I automatically go to a place of like, are you literally about to tell me a crazy conspiracy theory? No. Part of this is this week, uh, as part of the stuff I was doing for Wired, I I read a, too much on the QAnon stuff. Oh yeah. Which is right. the wackiest conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but as part of that, there was a story in I want to say it was the Washington Post, which was. Uh, from someone who on Wednesday, or I think Thursday, wrote, uh, this is what the QAnon conspiracy theory is. For mm-hmm. people who don't know what I'm talking about, it's a conspiracy theory that essentially says, you know all that deep state shit that, that, uh, right wing people believe? That's fucking nothing. This is the deep, deep state where every politician has been in on it since Ronald Reagan, uh, and they're tra- it's been taken down by a cabal of good guys who recruited Donald Trump to save America. Oh, that's, Jesus Christ, those that's idiots. Sure, that's wow. Sure version. Wow. It, it literally, like, is is absolutely crazy and contradictory and one of those things that, like, literally you just can't believe how people believe it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it, it literally makes no sense. It doesn't hang together at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone, so someone in the Washington Post wrote this story, which was explaining it. And then the next day they wrote a story, which was, after I published the story, someone got in touch and was like, ah, sheep, you don't understand. If you just look into it a bit more, you'll, if you read up, you'll understand. <laughs> and it's, they do an interview with this guy. Uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Because this guy, like, firmly believes, like, says through the interview more than once, like, I don't fall for bullshit. Right. You know, I, I, I really, like, I look into these things, I research, I'm an independent thinker, but, like, this conspiracy theory that makes no sense, right. it's, it's the only rational explanation. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so you're... it's funny, like, you know, if you do the reading, I honestly flash back to that guy <laughs> who was like, you know, hey, you know, Washington Post journalist, if you just did the reading on this, you'd understand that, of course, George Bush... Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton are all playing for the same team, yeah. and that team wants to destroy America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so Graham, I cannot believe it, but you have herded our conversation into one of the things, one of the books that I wanted to talk about. Oh my God, yes. It was just, I'm just like, this is stunning because I, um. Just today, and man, it took it, it took a while to get through it because it's it's a it's a deep read. Uh, I read Sabrina by uh, Nick Dernasso, who it's the most of I, us. I, I have that book on my on literally on on my table to read, and, and haven't uh, in large part because I think it's going to be really intense. It's it's very intense. It's very intense, but you should also uh I it. It's intense in a different way, and and I think you should start in in on it because 
Hmm, how do I put it? So it's it's it strikes strikes me if nothing else is emotionally intense. Um, you know, it is emotionally intense, but Jesus, uh, Dernasso. Wait, you should, you should explain what this book is. Yes, like the two of us are, are talking around it. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, Sabrina by Nick Dernasso just uh, was released, I think, a few months ago from Drawn and Quarterly. It is uh, was announced. It's the first graphic novel to be uh, nominated for uh, the Man Booker Prize. And it concerns a crime that happens um, and essentially the fallout from that crime. And uh, when I had the way that it sort of been quickly blurbed was sort of a um, like about a woman who disappears. But the focus is more on how the quote unquote media covers it. And I was like, oh, that seems kind of, you know, whatever. Like, and that is a, a, a an imp- is it makes sense, but it is an imprecise way to just to describe it. You get a chance. the The book opens uh, with an interaction between two sisters, and then uh, who are staying at their parents' place while the parents are out of town. They're both grown women, and they sort of have some, you know. A little bit of chit chat about their their times in the house and how they're getting along with their parents and etc. All very low key. And then uh, the next morning, you see the one sister who's house sitting get up and get ready for work and leave and uh, you know go and pop on the bus and that's more or less where you know the last time you actually see her in the narrative. Um, so the rest of it is the sort of the fallout spread among the the man that she was dating her sister and interestingly enough the man that she was dating this is this uh incident happens in Chicago he has a uh high school a close friend from high school who is in Colorado working for the Air Force uh whose marriage has just recently fallen apart and uh, the friend in the Air Force invites the the boyfriend to, to sort of come out and stay with him while he, quote-unquote, gets his head back together. And it is an astonishingly well-written portrait of grief and loss, but then it gets shot through this filter of... Um, uh, basically about, I don't know, a third, two thirds of the way through the book. I guess it's a third of the way through the book. People on the internet start saying that the murder hasn't happened and that the woman disappeared or didn't exist at all. That this is all essentially that she's a crisis actor and that the people involved in this supposed murder are all putting up a false flag front and so literally everything that you are talking about Graham there are pages where just in little tiny panels you hear you see people's like YouTube comments and things on what people believe is happening and every every little bit that you've said like just right from I'm an independent thinker to all of this stuff and how it 
twists these people who are already going through tremendous amounts of grief. It is, mm-hmm. it is, it is, it is so brilliantly captured and of the moment. And there's a lot of things that Dernasso does that's really interesting. I was, in a way, very off-put by his illustration style. It's, um, it's one of those, he's one of those cartoonists that is, and this is going to sound like a slam, but it's not. He's an excellent writer, and uh, the strength of his art really comes from just a really brilliant sense of pacing. Like, the majority of the book is built on a 4 by 3 grid, so 12 panels per page. But it's not uncommon for him to actually move to, like, double the number of uh, panels... Um, so suddenly it, it would be something like if you were looking at a, a, again, this is where my brain starts to kick in. Like practically, what could it be an 80, uh, 48 pa- panels to the page? Except he combines and breaks down the movement. So it's very regular, but there's times where the pacing will, it's not uncommon for him to have a tier where it's like four small panels on the left hand side and then one large panel on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. And then, and so, and also the other thing is, is I was thinking a little bit about how it's almost like, um, like a, an American version of a, the Lin, Linier Claire style, like I, you know. It, oh, interesting. You know, in that it's it it the line the the there's not a lot of um, difference in the line weight, and you, mm-hmm. and he uses the color to create the perception of depth, but he's also using the color to to a psychological end because it's alternately. The muting, the, the colors, there's a lot of browns and yellows, but, um, definitely to convey sort of, uh, a, a, a complete sense of sort of shock. But you know, you know that sort of the, the more placid shock in many cases. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Like shutting down shock as opposed to like. Exactly, exactly. You know, gasp horror. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question about the artwork. And again, mm-hmm. I've not read the book. I've, I've literally just glanced through the copy. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a really strong Chris Ware vibe yes. from it. And that's what I was going to mention is, is actually the way in which it made me think of the way that Ware has used some of the, I, I think, I feel like that some of the tricks from Linnea Claire in terms of the way that he uses color to help you know, um, break up his line weight, but he also then cranks it in, in, in a different way because he also can crank up the amount of detail on it while also leaving the simplicity in the characters' faces. So, where is very much, is I, much more of a, an inspiration here, definitely in sort of the, um, the way that where stuff has that kind of, flatness to try and make the the drama kind of pop out of it I guess and also because there's a lot of interestingly enough however you think about where you know he he tends to fall into the old fogey modern life is so terrible here's the banality of America whereas yeah. uh Dernasso's stuff is is done to a completely different end there's bits and pieces in it where there's a lot of 
kindness and generosity in the book from unexpected places and Mm -hmm. which makes it all the more effective when some of the areas of suspense start to creep in you know uh I, again, I, I, some things that's, one of the things that someone recommended it to me, or reference when recommending it to me, mm-hmm. which got me really interested in, because I knew some of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, but someone said that there's, uh, maybe not an influence, but a similar strain to Kevin Huzenga's work. Yeah, Huzenga makes a lot of sense, cause I feel, I was gonna mention Huzenga in a way, because I feel like Huzenga's got a, um, I don't, I don't quite know how to pin it down. Like, on the one hand, uh, Huzinga's one of those guys who has, like, you know how he can sort of switch between a surprising warmth and then an, an almost, um, brittle formalism? Yes. You know, and, and that, that also I think feels like an element that you can read in Dernasso's work. And it's, it's it's a, a remarkable piece. It's like 220 pages. I swear to God, I was reading it for hours and hours and hours and looked up and I was like at page 105 and I was like, Jesus Christ. Like it is, particularly because it is so, um, the details, you know, it's kind of spare. There's a few points actually which are great where he has one of the characters look inside a child's book that's almost like a Where, Where's Waldo page, which is just... Mm-hmm covered in a, a horrifying like an like an overwhelming amount of detail and it's great because a it sort of for me was like oh oh he he can draw like that if he wants to um because one of the things that it actually off put me about the work uh, uh, the first 10 or 15 pages or so was the way that he uses characters I couldn't quite tell if the the sort of very minimal blankness in the characters' faces was um, sort of deliberate or was I, how do I put it like a uh, an artistic choice to to you know mask a weakness I suppose to turn around and and play play to one's weakness as well as one's strengths, but because um, there were some times where I was like. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to interpret this facial expression. And there were times where I was like, I think I'm interpreting it as I just don't think this cartoonist is especially good at facial expressions. But then later as it went on and after a few of those other things, it was like, oh no, this is, this is, this is how he's conveying the. Yes, this is like, it's it's an intentional choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that, that he is in a very, very light way, um, showing you the dissonance between how the, what the characters are feeling and how they present. So it's like when it feels like they're presenting something that doesn't seem like it seems like he he didn't nail the the thing. It takes a while to, for me anyway because I'm I'm a dumbass to be like, "Oh no, he he he's he's tr- definitely trying to show that these people are as many of us are trying not to actually show what's going on inside with them." So uh, so it was interesting. It was, it, it's, it's a great read. It really is. But it so ties into, like, everything that you're saying about the, the QAnon and, and all of that. And it does, it gets, that sort of stuff becomes more and more terrifying 
as it as it begins to creep in and so the the paranoia there's a couple of sequences that are just wonderful in the way that you read them and you're like shit how is this going to go mm-hmm. and um well it's it's so prevalent to today yes you know like mm-hmm. like not just the QAnon stuff which is genuinely terrifying Jeff. Mm-hmm. like in the series you look into it and you see that people like really believe this and you're like oh shit like this is there's no way this ends well yeah yeah. Not at all. Right. Um, there's, I think I've said this before, I listened to the New York Times Daily podcast. Mm-hmm. And the Daily has a really good, like, you know, 20 minute brief, like, the, oh, of what it is. And ends as almost as if they were like, oh, that's right. We're not a news podcast. We're going to end at, like a Twilight Zone episode. Mm. Uh, because they go through the whole thing and they talk about like all the signals that people have invented within this mindset. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, 17 is a number that has a lot of prevalence because Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet. Mm. And then the end of the, the podcast is they're like, and yesterday Donald Trump tweeted like two tweets that specifically referenced 17. <sighs> and you're like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. Um, no, but but not only that. There's also uh, you know all the Alex Jones Sandy Hook stuff, which is what yes. when someone first told me about Sabrina, like that that was where my mind went. Yes, no, and it should, oh. and it, yeah, and in fact, one of the things that's actually a little bit frustrating for me was the nature of what happens to Sabrina doesn't quite tie in as well um, to some of the Sandy Hook stuff, which is clearly where he's drawing the the references to. Um, but, but honestly, by the end of it, I'm like, right, no, this is just, this is just, it's, it is really close to universal, this distrust. One of the things that's actually kind of interesting to me is, is that, um, there's, there's a section where one of the characters ends up watching a special about a 9/11 anniversary and and talks about what's going on uh, in the in the rebuilt freedom center and stuff and and I think I think the most um I think I've heard or believed other people who've kind of put forth this idea that that essentially um you know that 9/11 so fucked us up as a country that that there that there's sort of it's sort of a nationwide grieving thing that essentially can't quite allow us to believe reality anymore and mm-hmm. i mean this is to me i i say like that's a thing that gets thrown around all the time i don't know offhand where i might have seen it apart from say you know don delillo's you know later stuff but but i feel like it's a theory that's put out there what I like is, is I don't even necessarily know if that's where Dronasso's going with the whole section and some of the references to 9-11 that come in and out later, but it is, I almost hope that it is because it's a sort of more generous idea about our derangement, I suppose, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. and, and, and one of the things that is tough is, is because one of the characters in their grief does end up starting listening to one of these radio shows that's practically right out of InfoWars. But mm-hmm. what Dernasso has the radio host say is stuff that I'm like, fuck, I believe this and this and this. 
I don't believe that, <laughs> but I do believe this. And so he really does. He he is very he avoids caricature in 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 well, the novel, which is why it works so incredibly well. So I want to sort of jump off that for a second and say, like, when he has someone listen to, you know, Infowars-esque, mm-hmm. but obviously not like it feels ideologically opposed to Infowars if there's stuff that you believe in there. But but when you see the things that you believe, mm-hmm. does that make you question your beliefs? Like, did, did this book make you think, oh, maybe, you know, these things that I have held true are things that I should reexamine? Or was the value for you that you're like, oh, he's mixing truths and lies? Uh, I don't know, Graham. I don't know. I, I, that's, that's actually a really good point. Um, I think for me, uh, I'm, as, as you and listeners of the podcast know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pink, you know, and, and I also have, I tend to lean towards what I personally think of as some very loosey conspiracy theories, you know, like I, not really in the sense of, you know, it's like you're not going to catch me believing in Pizzagate or something like that. But, you know, for me, the way that I, I freak one, here's a thing that I frequently say is like, oh yeah, like there was a point in the 60s where essentially a bunch of people with money got really alarmed and they sat down, you know, threw a bunch of money at a conservative think tank to, to figure out how to keep the 60s from happening again. And a lot of what has happened since has been marching forward not entirely along those plans because you know i think there are things that that you know like things like the internet never could have it was not clearly on anyone's radar and completely re has rewritten the way that we access and believe access the world right so but there are times where i don't think that it's super crazy to say that people with a lot of money were a little bit alarmed when it seemed like there was a period where suddenly people were like uh we don't really want this we don't really want to support war we don't really want to support the military industrial complex and they were like well this is kind of rough how do we get around this you know and and i do think that those things happen and so hearing what's what's really so great about sabrina is, is i mean there's many things but the fact that the radio host very much talks about this idea that essentially the rich have always been the rich and they want to stay rich and their interest is in keeping their wealth and the things that they can or might do in order to do so means how are they going to strip us of our individual liberties right and i'm like part of me is like yeah that's okay as he goes on the way that he builds it and what he builds it to it sounds pretty horrible and terrifying and 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 at a certain point you're like yeah this is just this is kind of this is kind of poisonous this is kind of Mm -hmm. poisonous thinking you know yeah it's just it's just funny because you're, you know, you're explaining your, your, you know, the rich have been rich. And so they got together and basically made a plan to be rich, which is, yes, a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. But also, when you look at history, it's right. also how the world works. We'll see. But, exactly. you know, but also, like, a, a, a third point is that is the, 
the ground point of like QAnon and Pizzagate and the deep state and and all of these because all of these conspiracy theories come from the root of the elites mm-hmm. you know to use the the right wing term right uh are are keeping down right right you know no. so it's it's yeah it's 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 you know part of me is like well, Janet, your conspiracy theory is like such a base understanding of the world that it can go anywhere. You shouldn't take the, like, right. I'm almost absolving you of like any connection to these other theories. Well, no. And like, yeah, but that's the way the world works. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's kind of a thing of, I, I personally feel like when the truth is held from you, you have, when you see that the world works differently from the way that it that you are told that it works, your brain rushes in to fill in the gaps, you know? Like, I remember being really frustrated. There were, there was a period uh, in the media where, as hip-hop was becoming large, um, there would be interviews with hip-hop stars, and they would be talking about some of the things that they believed, right? And, you know... You have guys saying, like, I believe that AIDS was created in a lab to kill black people. I believe that, like, there are white people living on the moon, you know? And I, what drove me nuts was the undercurrent of the reportage was kind of like, ah, ha, 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 these people are, you know, dumb and ignorant, you know? And, and really what it was is that, 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 I thought is is that you know black people in America see a side of America that is not discussed in the media. They know that what is being told to uh, is being put out and disseminated is not reality. Now, where your brain goes is to where reality is. You know what I mean? Once you figure out that you're being lied to is one thing where you try to go to where the truth is or where you try to figure out where you're being lied to at the fact that people jump to these areas of you know like pizza gate and like chains of like people being abused or like they're all members of the satanic church or all of this huge hysteria which you know tends historically to sort of fall into sadly this same regular template, you know, is something that is, ultimately, it's this human attempt to be like, I I know that things aren't what they seem. I know that I'm being lied to, but I don't know how. And what exactly the nature of the lie is, I don't even know if that's the truth. I'm, You know what I mean? Like, it, like, whether those are big things or small things, you know? There's this whole deal about human evolution of like we one of the biggest tools in the evolutionary toolkit for human beings is our ability to deceive one another, you know, in order to be able to excel and compete. It's an evolutionary trait that made is very successful in the sense of, you know, the long term of the success of the genes. So there's a lot of deception that falls into, and it, I mean, it's throughout nature. If you look at things from like, you know, Venus flytraps to like, I don't know, you know, birds that are colored in one way to look more aggressive than they are, or, you know, pufferfish or whatever, right down to human beings. 
we lie. And I do wonder sometimes if just the idea of having an amplification uh, via public media, uh, you know, amplifies the, is this a lie? What does this lie mean? And also kind of that idea of like, it, it, it takes that, because just as there's that thing of like our ability to lie is isn't I guess an evolutionary trait, the ability to not to to have doubt, you know, is also has to be ingrained in there, but not too much. And so sometimes I do wonder if our popular media, because it amplifies everything, it amplifies whatever that idea of like how can I trust this voice? And this is where this paranoia comes from. Is it's it's like just the same way that it's one voice magnified a, a million times um, via the news, our suspicions or our, our, our distrust or our skepticism gets also inflated. You know what I mean? Like it's just, mm-hmm. it, feel, it feels like uh, almost an inescapable trap, which is terrifying. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it's, God, I, wouldn't it be great if we could all come out of this like, somehow managing to both trust people more and also not be suckers, you know? <laughs> like, uh, I, It's funny. I was listening to a conversation today between, uh, God, I can't even remember who it was. It was someone from Wired that was being interviewed, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Facebook. And they were talking about Facebook uh, display, like saying that it's not a media company. It is a, a platform. It's a social media platform. Right. Um, and the how, how true and untrue that is. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. Like he he offered a really nuanced take, which was essentially, on the one hand, it's it's true they're not a media company, they're not a publisher, because none of the content is original. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, something that Facebook did is it actually flattened the media landscape, mm. so that. Infowars can get the same attention, the same respect, the same everything as, you know, whatever, the New York Times, uh, you know, the Guardian, um, you know, whatever news organization, organization that, you know, we think of as legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and literally like, New York Times, eh, but you know what I'm saying. Well, no, but look at how much that has changed for us, you know, that weird way in which, the reason why you and I might be like, eh, the New York Times, not so much now, as opposed to like five or ten years ago, um, and someone else might be saying, for completely different reasons. Like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've been pretty appalled by the way that the Times has, has coverage, covered some of the things, uh, or their op-ed choices have been... Yes, exactly. Like, like for me, the New York Times' biggest faults have been... Uh, uh, too much focus on balance, quote unquote, when there is no real balance. Exactly. Like, you right. know, uh, where it's like, you know, but really, are Nazis that bad? I mean, we're, we're days away from the New York Times having an op-ed. It's like, you know, right. but really, the Nazis made some points. Yeah. Um, right. And it's, but especially the op-ed page, you know, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. There, there's been some appalling, appalling material there. That's right. Um, Whereas so yeah, someone think, on the right, some or someone way under Donald Trump's wing would would have a completely different reason to say why they sure. don't trust the New York Times. 
right? Sure. So I just wanted to point that out. I mean, I know it's with, it goes with, almost without saying, but but I no, do no, think I, that I, that guess, is a, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like I I really not that I've never considered the idea that like one of the things that Facebook had really done beyond like making this, the what I would call um, objectionable content easily shareable mm-hmm. is that it really had in refusing to take a stand as to what is uh, true. What is what is legitimate? What is 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 um basically like what is not fucking insane and delusional yeah. is that it really did create this level playing field that I think for the people within Facebook they were like yes it should be a level playing field everyone come and play together and then you realize like but it shouldn't be a level playing field right because you're going to get people who are going to just abuse that right and I and use it to spread this this disinformation again we're, we're a comic book podcast jeff bring us back to sabrina so we can get roughly get back to well anyway comics. people sabrina is great if you think the stuff that graham and i are saying is well how do i put it if you because i think that the one of the things that's great about sabrina is is that it feels it feels so much like real life and honestly what I thought was interesting was how much it feels like sections and swaths of American specifically American life that I don't see I feel captured or portrayed as much and honestly there's parts of that where again it has a lot to do with the kindness and the generosity of of people um, you see a lot of generosity shown in the book, which is interesting because you also see a bunch of paranoia and fear and you see things yeah, and, and threats and and there is a horrific act of violence that is, although not shown on the page, is talked about to a level that is um, that that does get in, under your skin, you know, and uh, it so it's. It's it's it is a beautiful example of specificity and particularity um, that allows that really does allow you to kind of it it captures that where we're at, but it also gives you a a, a way to sort of organize or a lens through which to view it that that also manages in in a way that is. Um, so rare to not feel um, I don't know what the word is like biased or uh, it, it, it doesn't it, it really doesn't feel skewed you know it, it presents things in a way that feel very devastatingly quietly effective but it doesn't necessarily feel like a piece of of propaganda it's it's unsettling and moving and rewarding in in the way that like art really can do so it's great definitely definitely people it's it's worth grabbing it whether that's via the library uh in your comic book store which i'm sure is you know a wonderful choice because i i don't i think it only really came as a on comiXology literally like this last week so uh yeah i mean it only was released in print in may apparently right so uh, I, I'm literally looking at the right. my copy right now, which has press release like folded into it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, it, it's it's I should say it's uh, by Drawn and Quarterly. If anyone mm-hmm. is looking to order this, yeah, it, it's uh, Drawn and Quarterly published this Sabrina by Nick Ternasso. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. 
and then I've got a bunch of other comics that I want to talk about. So, uh, but Graham, how about you? Are you? Oh, you know what? No, no, I, 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 I'm happily, I'm happily yeah. going to follow your leads, Jeff, in this. Well, wonderful. In the sense of you're going to let me um, bring up the next book, or you've got your own little thing to talk about. No, no, in, in that I would let you bring up the next book. Um, I have been reading. I've been reading uh, lots of. I think I said this to you. Uh, maybe last week, or maybe not while we weren't recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, since coming back from ComCon, like, my comic reading has been very strange, and I've really been reading prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my comic reading for the last week or so has honestly been old X-Men comics. Oh, interesting. But not comics that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm reading, I'm almost finished, like, Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy. Which is a series I didn't read mm-hmm. from like 2008, 2009, I think. Um, I have worked through X Men Gold and X Men Blue, the, the the current series. Uh, like I I don't know why X Men in particular, mm-hmm. but I've been weirdly and it, it's it's become a weirdly um, repeating read in that like I read it and I'm like oh now I want to check out blah blah blah. At no point would I say that I'm really... That's not true. The Mike Carey run, I am enjoying a lot. But no other point would I say that I was really like, these are amazing comics. Right. Uh, it's more... There's something about the tone of these comics uh, and and the hopelessness, I guess. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're very pessimistic comics, Jeff. Mm-hmm. They're amazingly pessimistic comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, even for all their like, we're being superheroes, which, oh my god, X-Men Gold is Mark Guggenheim literally going, I fucking love the Chris Claremont run, what if I write, write a slightly worse version of it? <laughs> um, but again, but, the joke but, being but, like, that's, that's so often, that's the majority of people on X-Men, in a way, you know? Well, yeah, very much so, but it's, it's, None of like they're not hopeful comics, and there's something about that. Mm-hmm. There's something about how, in different eras, the writers translate hated and feared, and what that means. Mm-hmm. That is astoundingly fascinating to me right now. Mm. You know, like because, and again, I was not reading X Men during this time, but the time when X Men Legacy is happening is the the Utopia era where the X-Men became essentially separatists and they mm-hmm. lived on a, a island outside San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And there's such a, a like paramilitary separatist element to the X-Men mm-hmm. that is genuinely creepy to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and it's not... Not only is it not questioned, it's glorified. Mm-hmm. You know, they're seen as being noble for hanging out in an island... And, and withdrawing from the rest of the world and being like, everyone hates us. Mm-hmm. We're going to fucking hang out on the island. And if we do anything for the good of humanity, they should thank us for it. <laughs> you know, and, it, it's, and there's something really fascinating about reading that today. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's inevitably something fascinating about reading it when it was coming out. But, but now it feels like it reads differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't read it without thinking of... Like the Oregon ranchers and 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 the fact that they get pardoned, like you know, mm. recently, and and that's in my head as I'm reading it. And as much as I'm I'm genuinely enjoying the Mike Carey stuff, mm-hmm. um, because he's he's arguably one of the more character focused writers to have to have 
taken on an X-Men book at this point. Um, it's, again, I'm reading the, all these politics into it. You know, an X-Men is, maybe, maybe it's not always been an inherently political book, but definitely. During that Claremont, time it was, you know. Well, since, since Claremont, especially, mm-hmm. it's been seen as a political book. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, it's been a very, I don't know, it's been a very, uh, not escapist, escapist read, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that. So no, like, talk about your comics. They're inevitably more interesting. Oh, I don't necessarily know if that is true, but we'll find out in a minute. But before we get there... Well, let's... The thing is, I'm, I'm also flipping between that and Judge Dredd, so I really am in this weird... Like... Ah, see, yeah, good old Judge Dredd. Um, can we talk just for a second about how Mike Carey has got to be one of the most slept-on comic writers of, like, the last 20 years, you know? Like, now, would you say that? I'm I I'm very curious why you're saying that. I will say that because when I worked at Comics Experience, which was around 2005 or so, admittedly, one store, anecdotal evidence, there are people, or you know, there's uh, there's going to be a bias in terms of the type of shop that it is, the type of regulars that go on there, the number of people that truly adored Lucifer. Like, that was... It's it's like one of the great um, Vertigo books for them. It ran a long time and, and, again, just people who really talked about it. So seeing you talk about Carrie, um, also I'm very aware of the fact that Carrie's like one of those guys who like went on to have like a big um, best-selling paperback series, right? Like he's got yeah, this... there's a girl with all the gifts. Right, exactly. That's like that's like a seriously major hit. Which of course he 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 wrote under M. R. Carey, which you know. So, uh, but I mean, he's like, it, it's. I just find it fascinating that it was kind of like he had this big hit on Lucifer. You're reading him on X-Men. You know, it was during a period where it just kind of seemed like he was sort of flailing about, but like, there's people who really... The fact that it's sort of the standout of the group of people that were kind of flailing about during that period. Um, the fact that there's a lot of people who have a lot of fondness for Unwritten. Um, there was the that one amazing that, book that looked uh, like... Unwritten is actually why I was I was pushing back. Ah. I was like, yeah, like Unwritten didn't like didn't come together for me. And I was someone who read all of Unwritten, and it it just didn't quite work. I can't I can't explain it. It it always felt like uh, lesser than some of its parts. Right. Well, and which sort of makes sense to me. But it is it is a how do I put it? Um, it's still kind of it's one of the longer vertigo runs from that from that period of vertigo you know and oh, and sure, that, yeah i i mean i'm being i'm talking about it in a completely cynical way in that sense but i'm just like i feel like he's a guy who has a lot of talent um and some of his books were very well loved and lucifer comes to mind and it just it just feels like he's not someone that got a ton of attention or praise then or even now in a way and i you know mm-hmm. i just kind of think that that's kind of interesting 
So, um, but like yeah, you said, he's, he's, he's someone I think who is going to be, especially his X Men work. I think his X Men work is one of those things that's going to be rediscovered at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is, uh, I don't know if you remember X Men Legacy or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. uh, X Men Legacy. So X Men, what's it called? Ejectiveless X Men mm-hmm. is uh, issue two hundred ends with the death of Professor Xavier. Mm. He get he gets shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Except he doesn't get killed because the very next issue is the first issue of X Men Legacy. Mm. Um, all right, maybe it's not two hundred. Maybe it's it's storyline starts in two hundred and ends like somewhere else. Anyway, what the issue after he gets shot and killed? They're like he didn't get shot and killed. He's in a coma. He's got terrible brain damage, but it sets up the first run of X Men Legacy, which is essentially Xavier recovers, hmm. but doesn't have all of his memories, hmm. and goes looking to find, like, fill in the missing elements, but also atone for his sins. Hmm. And it's 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 a, a series that essentially goes. Yeah, he may have had the best of intentions, but he did some terrible things. Mm, mm-hmm. And because he did some terrible things, and because now he is not that same person, because he there has been brain damage. Right. Um, how does this Professor Xavier uh, deal with this? How how can he atone? Mm-hmm. Can he make up for it? Um, and which which is an interesting take, and it's an interesting way to look back on the history as well. Right. Right, you know, and, and from there it spins out into sort of a rogue book, which is not as interesting. Mm. Uh, I, but it's still a, a, an enjoyable character-based book, mm-hmm. which essentially is like Rogue is now teaching the, stu- the young students, so it's the young student book, but Rogue's at the center of it. Mm. Uh, and he, he he they fix Rogue's powers, like mm. it's one of the, the the end of the Xavier and Passover to Rogue is essentially Xavier going, yeah, I, like you never you have psychological trauma and you never learn to use your powers. And so I will help heal your psychological trauma and you will be able to use your powers now properly. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to control, you'll be able to touch people. Um, which I'm fairly sure has been undone by this point in comics yes. because of sure. course it has. Yeah. Like it breaks the central gimmick of Rogue. Yeah. Um, but, but what it does with the broken central gimmick of Rogue is go, oh, maybe Rogue can be like a, an emotionally healthy person. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And it turns out it looks very interesting because she was this person who was broken for a long time mm-hmm. and who had a terrible upbringing and who, who was who was filled with this self-loathing, filled with this fear that she is a monster. And how does she, having worked through that, help others avoid that? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these mm-hmm. interesting things in there. Um, and I feel that a lot of that is ready to be picked up by other writers now. Mm. But at the same time, I say that, and the reason I picked was reading X Men Legacy in the first place was I was reading Charles Sewell's Astonishing X Men, mm-hmm. which is another time, like the most recent time, Professor Xavier, uh, Professor Xavier has come back from the dead, mm-hmm. and it's far less interesting, mm. uh, and it just sort of, yeah, it, it's very. Um, like Matt Rosenberg's Phoenix Resurrection, um, and I suspect like the the Return of Wolverine comic when it comes out, they're all so aware of the fact that none of these characters stay dead anymore mm-hmm. that they're not really doing anything interesting with the Resurrection stories. Right. You know, like Phoenix Resurrection is kind of a meaningless horror story. Mm-hmm. 
which is just like, it's okay, because Jean's better than the Phoenix, everything's fine. You know, and and the Astonishing X-Men run is essentially, what if Professor Xavier comes back, but he's kind of younger and a little bit different, and hey, what's that look like? But but with that, what it does is the opposite of what uh, Mike Carey was doing, which is, oh, he's kind of absolved of all of his sins, mm-hmm. because he's a different guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's not as interesting to me as a reader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely not. You know, for for all the people being like, we can't trust him. Who is he? It's not as interesting as people saying that, but he's very aware of what he's done in the past, and feels he has to atone for it. Yeah. You know, having him basically like, no, call me X, which is a natural thing. He's like, don't call me Xavier, call me X. I've like, I've I've taken over the body of Phantom X, but it's Xavier's mind. But I'm really called X now. You guys. Bitchin. <laughs> uh, that's not that's not as interesting to me. Right. No? So you know, on one hand I feel that X Men Legacy leaves a lot of things for people to pick up. Mm-hmm. I also feel that the current school of X Men comics is just not interested in picking them up. Mm. And that's that's my X Men stories. That's your X Men <laughs> story. I will just because I don't think that I have any any anything uh, meaningful uh, uh, to add to that. I'm going to jump over to the next book, which is uh, the Seeds by David Aja and Anne Nocenti. What's it like? Because I've seen people, I've seen so many people talk about this, mm-hmm. and I feel like they're all saying such different things. I really want to know what you think. Well, uh the as 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 a dude who is prone to read comics for just gorgeous fucking art it is unbelievably beautiful it is just astonishing to look at it's just a delight um the the art on it kills me um burger is interesting uh because it's Wait, you mean Nascenti or? Do you oh, mean, sorry, like, Nascenti. Yeah, Burger sorry, sorry. It's, yeah. it's Karen Berger's editing it. Nascenti is is really interesting in it because it is. Uh, I. Uh, it, it, it makes me realize like how complicated it is to, um, like and Nocenti in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, oh, interesting. Because honestly, I think that Nocenti is a sort of... Um, if you look to me... Like, I remember when I was reading her work when it was coming out back when she was like doing Daredevil and Longshot and, and other stuff. Mm-hmm. And she is a... Um, you know, I just finished talking about Sabrina and talking about how nuanced it is. Nocenti is is not nuanced, and that's kind of where the strength of her work comes from. I mean, I don't know how to put it. Like, she has, she'll have extra layers in her work. She puts more thought into her work um, than I think when you pick up sort of your average everyday, you know, and Daredevil, I think, was an amazing example of this, is like, she really did have things that she wanted to say in Daredevil. She really had some ideas about Matt Murdock and the nature of his of how fucked up he was and 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 put it in a posited it in a very different direction from the um 
the Frank Miller form of fucked up. Like, she's very much more aware of, like, her Daredevil's just a great take on, like, toxic masculinity all the way yeah. back in the 80s, well before we really had, like, that term to, to hang it on, right? Like, just fantastically so. Um, and so, to me, I feel like it could well be that the stuff that, that Nocenti is the best at is kind of, A, the way that it some of those things emerge over time, where you look back on her work and it's like, oh, this is really prescient. Um, and also sort of the very melodramatic, like, oh, and this is great because she's literally having a character whose name is Kickhead kicking somebody in the head. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And so the thing that's kind of tough about the seeds is um, there's some great, ideas that are there that are played with visually by Aja's work uh and 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 Nocenti doesn't quite you know just totally play it out but at least not yet because it's a four issue series but it's basically she's got a it's like a there's like a journalist this is in the near future there's a wall essentially that is up and people the reporter wants to report about like what's on the other side of the wall and of course we're in the process of learning what's hap what's happened in this sort of dystopic near future and it's essentially a lot of people have decided to opt out of civilization and go live in what appears to be like this tech-free radioactive wasteland rather than participate in kind of our, you know, a hellish, grimy, urban landscape. And so in one way, it's sort of like, oh, well, this is a thing of, you know, two Americas, but it's also, it's, it's, it's playing with a lot. It also doesn't necessarily do it in an especially, um, sophisticated good way. Good way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily want to say good or bad, but it's kind of, it's very much one of those things it's reading it is like I it's it suffers very very heavily from Warren Ellisitis you know what I mean like it's very much like I don't know if Nocenti has not read Warren Ellis and like all the stuff she wanted to do she was not aware that there's like a bearded guy who's been like working this material into the ground for like decades before she got there or if she is a big fan of that thing and was very much like, yeah, I want to do my take on it. And I think her take on it may well end up being interesting. But, like, the seeds kind of struck me like I was reading, you know, the last three Warren Ellis incompleted series, you know, all jammed into one beautiful package. You know what I mean? And And with a different a different lack of nuance than Ellis's lack of nuance. You know what I mean? So on the one hand, I was like, it's gorgeous. It's I'll read it. I'll keep reading it. And I, I have some suspicions, particularly by the time you get to the end of it, that some of Nocenti's ideas, again, because it's not Ellis's sort of like... It's not Ellis's take on it. It's Nocenti's take. Mm -hmm. May end up being in a far more uh, interesting place, um, but 
but yeah, the first issue of it, I was like, man, this is a gorgeous kind of not particularly inspiring piece of work. So that was my. It's take funny the the comparison of Nascenti and, and Alice there just made me think. In a way, they're both um, deeply sentimental, cynical writers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're both people who. On a surface level, are very cynical, right? But are amazingly sentimental and uh, mm-hmm. and and sappy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, Alice even more so than Nishanti, I think, will go for the happy ending, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or a a version of a happy ending, mm-hmm. because you know, I I don't think he could really. Uh, have the reputation that he does if he didn't try and stick the knife in in some way. Right. But, but Nisanti is, is also a, a, a writer who want, uh, what was I going to say, wants the best for her characters or, or believes that they deserve it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's, that's a, that's a good way to put it. It's funny. I feel like, how do I put it? I feel like, Nascenti and Ellis are both people. It's, I don't think of it so much as as like an interest in their characters, although they may. Um, I think that it, to me, it I always read it as a. Um, this is what I see in the world, and this is what I want to see in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, in a weird way, I feel they are both um, post-tippy hippies. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, a- absolutely. So, so I don't know. I think part of me is like, I just hope it's a huge hit because I'd love to see Nocenti do like a ton of other work because some of the stuff, some of the interaction in this is kind of like, honestly, I started having a moment about like 15 pages in where I was like, Man, I sort of wish this was big numbers. You know what I mean? Like, I it, not really because it would never ever get done. But wait, like, do, wait. What do you mean you wish it was big numbers? As in, like, it never finished, or as in right? No, I mean, as in the sense of Nocenti's lived in the world. Like, some of the there's a scene between two of her, basically a scene between her editor, the the reporter, and the editor about the nature of truth and. Um, and one of the characters, the editors basically like, yeah, you know, they, they said that, uh, you know, back in high school, uh, they started spreading the rumor that I was a slut and I, I wasn't, I was just, uh, I was just a quiet person, but after everyone being convinced that I was a slut, I was like, okay, fine, I'll start slutting around. And so she said like, kind of like what you write becomes the truth. You know, the, the, what, the story that you tell becomes the truth and, and sort of the power in, in, inherent in that as it goes on. But really, I mean, it was really just more of a sort of didactic point, but it was like actually really great having two, two female characters talk sort of one of them using their, their sexual history as an example for a point in an argument that they're making and not having it be a woo woo boys, you know, slutty McSluts in here, you know? And I just, yeah. I was, I was just kind of like, yeah, because David Aja can draw anything and just make it look just 
gorgeous to look at. It's like let's I you know let, let's have some more stories from from Anacenti that are just like you know people in New York who were like working for a big com- comic book company when it was hugely successful and the incredibly tall editor in chief had an amazing cocaine problem. Like there's going to be some great <laughs> stories that are come out of that. You know what I mean? Like let's get into that a little bit. You know so. That's all. But that's what's really funny is you said that, and I was like, "Yeah, don't you wish that Why I Hate Saturn had been a bigger hit?" <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. I'm actually always kind of uh, part of me is like, "Wasn't it though?" But I mean, I know what you mean. It really was not a hit. No, really, it really was not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, it quickly went out of print from two different publishers, Jeff. Well, yeah, but that's. Some some I I'm like, but that's just because it was handled wrong or it didn't get enough love or you know what I mean like. But that's I, that's why it wasn't a hit, Jeff. No, I it know. Well, it fails. That's I know. That's I but see again, that's the thing is is where is like that's my like this this is my version of being in a bubble is again I felt like in San Francisco I was one of the last people to read Why I Hate Saturn and everybody that I knew literally everybody I knew had read it loved it and could quote it. And then there were people like you who had like also read Cowboy Wally even before that and loved that even more and talked about it in tones where I was like, uh, I have no idea what these words mean next to each other, you know? So. <laughs> and then he did what was the next one? You're here, which was great. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I and then it just the quality fell. You know, it's great. I I just want to point out, my wife was walking through the living room at this point and made it a point to double back and whisper and point to herself and said, I read Cowboy Wally before you did. So that was... <laughs> Good job, Edie Burton. Good yeah, job. yeah. Everyone, if you want to know who the special MVP person, uh, player of the year for this episode is, it's it's my wife. You know, there's other stuff, like we should talk about Mr. Miracle 10, I think, right? Did you read, I mean, I know you read it, but I'm curious. Of course, of course I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Mr. Mir- <laughs> did I tell you, I was interviewing Tom King and I actually said to him, I think you're going to break my heart with Miss Miracle and I hate you, and he just like laughed guiltily. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even say anything, like I think he actually said sorry, like as opposed yeah. to trying convince me that anything else yeah 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 yeah. and i was like you fucker um mr miracle 10 like was really a gut punch to me Mm. really really very much and in particular it was the the barda scene oh yeah the barda scene is great it's it's where she just unloads on him yeah about how selfish he's he's being Mm-hmm. Even though, as you know, in the heroic fiction genre that this comic theoretically comes from, mm-hmm. uh, he's being anything but selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, because he literally has the weight of the war, and that, that's how he's approaching it. Yeah. And then you have Bart come along and just be like, "You're, so, you're, you're, you're you've never thought about me. You're mm-hmm. so selfish. Like, who do you think was holding you together all this fucking time? Yeah, like." Holy shit, Jeff, that was, like, that was really, that was a gut punch. Like, I had to take a minute after finishing those couple of pages. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow. The part of the scene where, she, where she's basically just, you know, pointing out that he is, he's so self-obsessed. But he's self-obsessed in a way that 
we have been taught to recognize the protagonist of a story mm-hmm. as being heroic mm-hmm. um was 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 amazing but was really genuinely like emotionally affecting to me like i i really had to take a moment after finishing those two pages and and be like okay like i'm i'm feeling feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that this is this is making me think about things from my own life like this is making me think about where where i've been selfish yeah. um and you know when i have been uh you know telling myself that i'm the hero of the story mm-hmm. um yeah it's it, those pages in particular, like really, you know, everything else in the issue, I enjoyed greatly. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a very good issue, but those two pages in particular just really genuinely wrecked me. Mm. Yeah, no, I thought they were great, and of course because they also have to talk about stuff that is literally been building for the entire series since the first issue. It just really had an amazing punch. I also did want to say I don't want to give away. Uh, I don't want to actually give it away, but I have to say that the whole sequence of Funky Flashman talking about the Golden Retriever is was kind of genuinely amazing to me. Like, really witty, but also kind of uh, one of the better Sympathy for the Devil sequences, I think, that I've ever read, you know? I, I've got to say, the use of Funky in this book mm-hmm. is is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Because he's—I mean—he starts as like the Funky Flashman joke, mm-hmm. and he's—he's he's just not that now. And it—it's almost as if like they switched it, and I fell for the switch in the background of an earlier issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, when you have Funky as essentially like the babysitter, who you know, it's—it's a—it's maybe a bit much to say like dispenses wisdom from from Scott's son, but mm-hmm. like there's an emotional core there that you just don't expect from like and yet again, I fell for it. I bought it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No? Yeah. No, I I I agree. It was really uh, that was really powerful. I thought it was ten was uh a incredibly strong issue. So it's interesting. I always feel like every time there's an incredibly strong issue, I'm sort of let down by the next one, so I'm kind of glad that the next issue is not the final issue, you know? So, but, um, yeah, good, really good stuff. Um, uh, I, it, where do you think it's going? Because I have had multiple conversations with different people who think that basically it's got to the point now where it can't be quote-unquote real. Oh really? Huh. Where, where, where there has to be, uh, a, a get out clause somewhere. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is, all of those arguments basically consist of the well, we're all taking Tom King's word when he says it's canon, mm-hmm. and go along the lines of like, well, you can't have canon where High Father and Orion are dead, and honestly, you know. Given where this issue ends, mm-hmm. um, Scott's choice is either going to leave him dead mm-hmm. or turn him into a, a particularly unsympathetic character. Mm. Um, and and the, 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 the thinking on, on these people's parts goes, you just can't. Like it, it breaks the fourth world entirely. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't use it as a concept anymore because you've left so many characters dead or changed or or both mm-hmm. that 
that you can't move forward with it. Hmm. Um, and I am I am at the point now, and I think I've said this earlier in the book, it's like, I would be perfectly fine if it came to its natural conclusion and then King was like, oh yeah, I was lying, it wasn't canon at all. Like, that would still be a rewarding story to me. Yeah, I think so, where it's more or less an Elseworlds in the sense of, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I sort of agree, is, is that this is a strong enough self-contained story that I'm okay with it getting to the end of it. And, um, I mean, honestly, I would say that, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say, personally, I kind of feel like King doesn't necessarily care so much about about quote unquote canon, so yes, that, which is kind of where I am as well. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it, it, like even his Batman, which is very clearly like mainline universe Batman, yeah, is plays fast and loose with continuity. Yes, absolutely. So I think he's going to end it, and it's going to be like, oh yeah, everyone's dead, but you know, or all the characters that have died off, or however, whatever happened has happened. But I do think that there's a um I. So I'm at that point. I'm much more worried about like, is he going to is he going to stick the landing? And I don't know. I really vacillate on that from issue to issue. I guess you know. How how do you feel he stuck the landing of other things? Like how do you feel he stuck the landing of Vision, Sheriff of Babylon, Omega Man? It's you know it's interesting because I feel like he totally stuck the landing on Vision. I thought that it was actually I thought he I thought that that totally worked out quite well. Uh, and yet, and I still haven't finished Sheriff of Babylon or even Omega Men, which I read like, Graham, like 10 issues in and didn't finish. So. Interesting. Like just, you just got distracted or you lost interest? Yeah, I got, I got distracted. I mean, it, it sort of came and went. Like I sort of appreciated though some of the things that he was doing, but when he, when it made the little, you know, twist turn about some stuff about a certain character's allegiance or whatever I was like oh this is like I kind of had that moment of like oh this should really drag me down the path of I, I should shoot through the rest of these issues but it just it didn't it just didn't nab me Sheriff of Babylon I think I, I finished volume one and I loved and then it was like I you know because it was broken up into two volumes I just didn't get around to the second one so I you should yes yeah. Um, but no, but I say that because I think Volume Two goes in a a place that makes the story makes Volume One a lot stronger in mm-hmm. that respect. Uh, but also, I think it goes in somewhere that you will appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think for me, what happens is, is I feel like King hits a point where the like with Vision, I feel like it's one of those sequences where the character where King figures out a way to make the character work in a way that's true to the, the, like simultaneously true to the conception of the character and true to the way that he's twisted the character in the story. So I very much suspect that, that, you know, Mr. Miracle is going to escape the, the impossible situation that he's in, but how he ends up doing that, I don't, I don't quite know. I I think it I think it will work for me and it'll be interesting to see how he makes that 
it'll just be interesting to see how it works. But yeah, it's it's uh, I I it's currently the um, the book that I have the most faith in King in, you know, whereas like the Batman 52, which was out, which is part two of the really sort of a classical Batman concept and a really, I think, clever idea for King, um, which I, I, the high concept is essentially Bruce Wayne ends up serving on jury duty uh, and the case has to do about whether or not Mr. Freeze should go to prison for crimes that he has confessed to, but says that he did so under duress from basically being beaten by Batman, um, is a really, is a really clever idea. And particularly the first part of the first issue, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then issue 52, I had the, oh, that was, oh, gosh, really? I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I really felt that it was um, King's got a really interesting pacing thing that I think is hard for me to work with in some ways. Uh, and and are I don't you know. are you talking about like within each issue? Because th- there's definitely parts of 52 that I think speak to your frustrations with 50. Uh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are there. Yes, the single page sequences. Yes, like like interludes where yeah. it's essentially like a pinup with 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 captions. Yeah, yeah. That was the part where I was like, "What the fuck?" You know, did not work for me at all. And and I am I'm, I'm really enjoying the meta aspect of of the issue though. Um. The the idea that at the same time as Bruce Wayne is having a breakdown, an emotional breakdown, post-Catwoman reconsidering uh, his, like, should he be Batman? Is Has mm-hmm. he gone too far because of grief? You also have the, but is something else actually going on? Mm-hmm. And you can't tell if Bruce Wayne is actually questioning, is Batman, like, did Batman go too far? Mm-hmm. Did, did he slip up? Or is something else going on? Mm. Like it's it's. I like that, that there is a, an ambiguity, mm-hmm. even within that, mm-hmm. as to whether Bruce Wayne has stopped believing in Batman, mm-hmm. or Bruce Wayne believes in Batman so much that he's like, oh no, this means someone is tampering with the evidence. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that that part is again. I don't know how to put it. Like it's a very clever, very almost classical. Batman idea like it's a it's an idea that I could see someone trying to do like in the 70s but they would also tell it at a very different pace with a very different angle you know what I mean they might wrap it up in like one issue or it might take a whole annual or whatever but but the I really when I read issue 51 I'm like oh this is great this is a good little I even started 52 being like I wonder if he's going to do like basically a bunch of one or two issue stories you know before kicking into the next big arc because how is he going to collect this i really did start it being like well surely this is going to be wrapped up by the end of this issue and when it wasn't i was like what the what (laughs) you know that's interesting because i always thought of it and i don't know if it is but i always thought of it as a three-issue story well, it, you know, Maybe, I, oh, actually, I, I, I'm going to look up uh, solicits. You, you see, see, that's see, it. See if it finishes. In, oh, I'm looking up solicit for Batman 54 first and <laughs> see if that's a different story or not. <laughs> that's very smart. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Batman okay. 54 is interestingly enough guest artist Matt Wagner. Oh wow! Yeah, I think I saw a 
a panel of that uh, on Tom King's uh, Twitter feed, and it was like, oh, holy shit, Matt Wagner, that's great. So, and also it would be kind of interesting because I I haven't that Wagner would also make sense in a way as a possible King influence, you know, in a way that I hadn't really thought about, and 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 in a way that really a lot of pieces could come together, I guess. Um, to pivot from Batman 52, I sort of, I did want to talk about the one-two punch that is the delightful, um, first team up of Superman and Batman, uh, in, <laughs> from Superman 76 from 1952 and the amazingly also amusing, uh, Revisitation of Superman Batman Annual Number One by Joe Kelly and uh, Ed McGinnis that reimagines it like just totally does an amazing number of crazy piss takes on on everything. So because I have to say part of what I love about the that first team up with Batman Superman is I think that it's one of the funniest. Like Edward Hamilton is just like a genius for some of the stuff that he does in that book, and then seeing what what Joe Kelly does, which is also phenomenally great, but funny in a different way, and kind of to me sort of like, yeah, that's funny, but it's not as just goddamn rich as oh no, it is six. Yeah, Joe Kelly is is um playing it for obvious laughs for yes. another better way of putting it yeah yep and, and like the the original story is just bonkers <laughs> yeah yeah so people i've been dying to talk about this story forever uh in fact i encouraged you to go hop on hoopla and check out the the world's finest uh silver age collection Volume one. It's also actually currently on sale for like five ninety nine on Comixology and Amazon in case you want a digital copy to, to own and read forever. But uh yeah, so Superman seventy six, it's basically a story where both Batman and Superman end up deciding to take a vacation cruise on a ship and Right before uh, they leave, there's... Well, basically, the cruise is so packed that uh, Clark and Bruce Wayne end up having to share a cabin. And they're like, uh, yeah, that's fine. You know, apart from the fact that I'm a superhero and what if this stranger discovers my secret it, identity? Well, it's so great because there is literally a panel where they're, they, the... The cruise director is, is putting them both in the same room and be like, this will be okay, right? And yeah. both of them are going, uh, sure. And then they have a thought of them being like, I hope he doesn't realize I'm Superman. I hope he doesn't realize I'm Batman. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's, and it's wonderful. So of course that's on one page and then literally on that same page, somebody f- fires incendiary bullets at a tank truck, runs into the flames in an asbestos suit so they can grab the diamond shipment and then runs back into the flames and hides themselves on the cruise. During the course of that, uh, as the uproar happens, which is great, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent are in the same cabin. It's, it's daylight out there and they're, they're basically like Bruce Wayne says, uh, 
mind if I switch off the light and turn in? And Clark is like, no, um, I'm tired too. Now, I know this is this for people who are thinking like, oh, Jeff is just really enjoying that this totally seems like two dudes who realize that they're going to be having sex with each other. But that's not the part of the story that I think is brilliant, although it is hilarious, the the panel of them basically like, oh, we've just met. Okay, let's turn off the lights and begin taking off the clothes together. Sure. Um, so, of course, they, in the course of the, that's their cover for each of them to change uh, into their secret identities, but then the light from the flames, which you think they would have thought of, for God's sakes, guys, ends up coming through the porthole and revealing the secret identities to one another. And they're like, oh, well, that's not a very big deal. Let's go well, and that. save they, the people. They literally are like, let's do our jobs and we'll talk about this later. Yes, it's <laughs> so great. So they end up like, Batman ends up having to save Lois. Superman ends up like taking the... Tr- the burning truck and hauling it out of the way and blowing out the flames with the super breath. And, you know, they basically realize the crooks on board. So they have to, you know, go and solve it. So they actually have to sail on the cruise ship as Batman and Superman, as well as in their everyday identities. So that there's a reason why they can't suddenly appear as Batman and Superman and have their identities be suspected. And then, of course, Lois, who is just dropping Clark off on board, gets permission to actually take her vacation so that she can get on the boat and also get the story. Now, the part that I love is for everyone else if you want to go on it's got all the usual awesome shenanigans of like you know like how the hell are we going to tell a story in which two of the most powerful dudes in the universe uh, managed to be thwarted by a diamond thief on a ship um there's all those shenanigans but the thing that is fucking phenomenally great is there's a panel where, because of course Lois is uh, instantly suspicious about Clark and Superman and Bruce Wayne almost immediately as well. So there's a scene on deck where Superman says, say, I just thought of a way to keep Lois out of my hair. If you could pay attention to her, make her think you're falling for her, and I pretend to be jealous, she'd be too occupied for amateur detective work. Now, I don't know about you, Graham, but of course, this is the sort of thing that when I was a kid reading Silver Age comics, I'm like, sure, that makes sense, I guess, you know, but what's great is Batman literally says, well, if you say so, all right, like, Batman, Batman, first off, should be called Wingman in this story, because he is so (laughs) awesome to Superman at every step, including where Superman says something as absolutely insane as, how are we going to keep her distracted? Oh, I know. You pretend to fall in love with her, and I'm going to pretend to be jealous, and that's somehow going to keep her from paying attention. Now, of course, Lois, because for whatever reason, Superman decides that this is a good conversation to be having on deck even though these guys are sharing a cabin together Lois is right around the corner and thinks so that's his scheme well I'll just teach Superman a lesson so one of the things that's fabulous about this story is there's all these incidents where basically 
you know, Lois gets saved by Batman or there's incident where there's the two of them are together, three of them are together, and Lois will say things like, Oh, it's only you, Superman. Batman was gonna tell me some of his great exploits. Wasn't it wonderful the way he saved me? And Superman says, I've saved you a hundred times, but you seem to have forgotten about that. So Superman is acting jealous to make it's part of his act, but the thought balloon is why I think she's really fallen for Batman. So the thing that's great about this crazy fucking idea of Superman's is he actually is pretending to be jealous while genuinely getting jealous of the whole situation. So part of what makes this entire issue fucking phenomenal is whatever the hell is going through Superman's brain. And there's a whole sequence where... Super, where Superman and Batman, like, in, in a way to, like, I don't know, whatever the fucking point is, is they, they both perform a set of super stunts. And Lois spends all her time being like, oh my god, he, isn't he, isn't Batman fantastic? And, uh, whenever Superman's doing stuff, she's like, oh ho hum. So at one point, Batman says to Lois, well, wow, look at him juggle those icebergs. What a guy. Which is a thing that Batman is just saying because he thinks Superman is awesome and also to help Superman. And, of course, Lois is like, yes, but he's so corny. I guess I'll yawn, go polish my nails. And Superman in the next scene is like, my superhearing caught what Lois said, Batman, and, well, I guess the better man won. And Batman's like, but I only paid attention to her to keep her from messing up our search. As you exactly. suggested. What is, what is going on? Superman, what is wrong with your fucking brain? Like, I love the fact that Superman's like, oh, here's a plan. Like, you just, you just pretend to pay attention to Lois and then she'll, she'll, like, we'll just, I'll pretend to be jealous and it'll totally keep her occupied. And Superman can't fucking help it. Uh, there is something so amazingly dysfunctional about Superman in this one story. <coughs> and I, I love it so much. Like, I, cause it's such a wonderful little Easter egg. It doesn't really need to be in there to have Superman be, you know, you can get away with the super, the traditional Silver Age Superman's a dick kind of thing and get away with it. I'd say Silver Age, but this is 52, so it's kind of not, who knows where it really falls in the, the, the age spectrum. But, I adore the fact that Superman is a fucking mess and the writer Edward Hamilton's like, yeah, let's just kind of underscore this a little bit. You know, I mean, I say, I say that like, it's not so much a psychological thing. It's very much sort of from the realm of screwball comedy. Like it's very much what you could see in a Cary Grant movie kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. Know? Very, very much so. Like it, it, it is very much inspired by the, the fiction of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But at the same time, I still kind of, I still love it. And I also really do love Batman being like, but this is what you, uh, why, what? You Bat know. Batman is just wonderfully game in the entire story. Yeah. Like there, at, at the end, there's a point where like the, the, the bad guys are getting away in a helicopter. Superman just throws Batman in a helicopter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, this like, is great. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Let you're gonna throw me? Sure, I. That's okay. Yeah. What what could go wrong? Yeah. There's there's another scene in this omnibus, like a couple of issues later, where like Batman and Robin are like climbing out of the bat plane to get onto the escaping criminal helicopter, and they're coming onto it 
from above. Like they're going down on t- they're like I'm like, what are you doing? Like Batman's like, Come on, Robin, down the ladder, like into the helicopter blades, quickly. I'm like, what are you fuckers? They're going to move so quickly that they're gonna go between the <laughs> just, blades. Just yeah. between the blades. Yeah, there's That's actually weak justices. <laughs> There's actually one of the stories, again, because the the helicopter is a constant source of fixation from these stories. There's another scene where Superman grabs the helicopter blades and holds them still, and the helicopter spins around, and all the dudes get, like, dizzy and are like, oh, put us down. And I was like, that's that's not how that works. (laughs) Like, it's a great idea to think so. But it really was. I was like, man, how... How high were the guys writing these these world's finest stories? Um, anyway, so yeah, Edward Hamilton. The answer is high enough. High, yeah, just high enough to make it absolutely entertaining. So I had to talk about it. I just adored the nuance of of Superman being, um, I don't know, super cuck for lack of a, a like lack of a more elegant or but sophisticated there, there is, or good way to think it. There's so many great things about it. Not least of which that Superman comes up with the plan, falls for his own plan. Yes! Oh my then god! so wonderfully like he really is petty about it. <laughs> He's like, oh well I guess you won. Sure. Fine. You go ahead. Why exactly. Get He's being it? totally pissy towards Batman. Batman's like what did I do? Like, it's beautiful. It's, it's, yeah. It's, I had that moment where I was kind of like, oh, I kind of get why Jerry Seinfeld thinks that Superman is his favorite character. Like, I kind of, kind of had, like, there's, like, some serious Seinfeldian stuff going on in some of these world's finest stories. Uh, and then, of course, the Superman, Batman, stop me if you've heard this one, is amazing, an amazing retelling, because, of course, it's just the way that they retell it and the fact that, that Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent just hate each other at first sight um, and the way they discover each other's I- secret identity is um, is is just really funny. Like, the whole thing is, is played for shtick. But also that this is a book where uh, essentially they're on a cruise that sails through the Bermuda Triangle and the Bermuda Triangle more or less opens up a dimensional portal uh, at least until you find the one-page epilogue that allows the characters basically the same cruise that is happening in Earth 3 where Owlman, Ultraman, and Superwoman are also all on board a cruise just as Clark, Bruce, and Lois are. But there's an attempt to essentially Ultraman and um, Superwoman have decided to rub out Owlman and therefore... Have hi- how did it work? They were going to hire an. I'm still so confused. Like, so, so have... they they because on Earth One or whatever it was called. Yes. Um, Deathstroke is trying to kill Bruce Wayne. Yes. On Earth Three. Yes. The Earth Three Deathstroke, who is really Deadpool, which is wonderful because of course he is. Uh, because of course he is. Um, He's has trying hired... to save Bruce Wayne. He's been hired to yes. save Bruce Wayne from yes. his, by his dad. Oh, but it's not Bruce Wayne. It's, it's not like Thomas Wayne or, or Thomas. It's, it's not Bruce, right? No, I think it is because Owlman isn't Bruce Wayne. Oh, is he Thomas Wayne? Gift? No, I thought I he, thought the point was he's Bruce Wayne's brother, isn't he? I guess that's probably right. I guess that's probably right. Um, he's treated very much like he is the same, just because of the way the two of them talk to one another. But maybe not. Maybe not. 
because because for if nothing else, when Superwoman's trying to kill the real Bruce Wayne, she's referring to him as Bruce Wayne, but doesn't know that he's a fake. Yeah, I, I'm getting my I'm getting my continuities mixed up because I'm like, but in Earth what? Like in the Earth <laughs> yeah, novel, right, exactly. Like they explicitly say it's not Bruce Wayne. Yeah, right, right. But uh, I think uh, that they're going. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 no, I think you're right. I yeah. think you are right. Just just the fact that. But it, but it it gets like both ridiculously complicated and like so complicated that it, none of it matters. If that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Like it's not a story that you really have to pay attention to. It really yeah. is a. Don't ask, just buy it. Story. Yeah, and it and it and it it pays off in spades for that. There's just a lot of comedy, a lot of action sequences that are popping up, and there is the fact that that fucking Joe Kelly gets to tell a dead that you know get, gets to have Deadpool like basically team up with Superman and Batman because he is the the evil universe version of Deathstroke is just great. It's just a. I, I reread it today, and I think yesterday, and I'd read it before, but rereading it, I'm like, oh, this is this is really funny. And Kelly also has some really nice touches in the way that he makes his take on Batman. That Batman is a little bit of a an arrogant rich snob, like, and that's sort of the a little bit of the the Batman pose, I guess, is really funny and and kind of clever uh I, I thought it was kind of effective like i th- feel like most people lean away from bruce wayne is like a rich guy like like as n- for no other reason than it's like you know oh sure he's rich that's you know to fund all of his various toys and cool stuff but you know kelly actually does point it toward a little bit more of a oh he he has a little bit of the I'm rich, therefore I'm better than you kind of thing that sort of comes out that he's not even aware of until he's encountering Owlman and he's like, oh my god is that what I sound like? I sound like an arrogant jerk, you know <laughs> which I thought was really wonderful. So I, I'm actually I'm, I'm looking at the pages right now and I completely forgot there's the point where Superman explains how he changes into his costume Yes, and, and Batman just makes fun of him and then Superman's like, yeah but Batarang sounds great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually a lot of their 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 one upmanship and then the way that, that that all plays out with them having it being stuck in one upmanship with their own evil identity selves is really fun. Just what a what a really clever, fun little issue. But, but What yeah. is funny is like why when did this come out? Do you remember? It was it was a while ago. That's actually a good question. Like it was back because when Loeb was still doing Superman Batman. Two thousand six. Yeah. Two thousand six is when it came out. Right. Um this came out before I knew the Deadpool was a parody of Deathstroke. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when you don't know that Yeah. This comic makes far less sense. <laughs> oh really? That's so funny. Um yeah, no, it, that was one of those great connecting bits where I was like Oh, oh, as someone who hadn't really thought of it, I thought Deadpool just had as much shit to do with basically, you know, Liefeld doing like, oh, it's Spider-Man, but with guns, you know, and this one was like, oh, of course there's that influence and how that plays out. And so just to go to town with that, and Kelly's actually, you know, I think I'm not much of a, a, I'm definitely a, 
a, a Deadpool dilettante, but I'm I'm well aware that I feel a lot of people think that Kelly's like one of the best Deadpool writers. So I have to say I'm not a Deadpool fan, but I did read the Kelly Deadpool run because I'm a Kelly fan. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people seem to have very high hold it in very high regard. So seeing him get to do this was was pretty great. So yes, thank God I finally got to talk about those. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about very briefly is, uh, and I, I wish I, I was so busy looking up, um, how to pronounce the name of the, the author of Sabrina that I didn't spend time looking up how to pronounce, uh, is Kichijoji the only place to live? Uh, which I, have you heard of this or no? I have, I have never heard of this. What it, is it? It is, it is a manga that is come out from, Jesus, I, I, it was at Kodansha because it was something that, that I bought when I heard about it through, I think, Debeoki's uh, Twitter feed. It mm-hmm. is it is a manga series that is entirely about, it's a pair of twin real estate agents and every um, every chapter is a new person walks into a, the, walks through the door wanting to live in the most trendy neighborhood in Tokyo, uh, and them going like, nah, you don't really want to live there. Let's take you somewhere else. And so it's them showing other people the other neighborhoods in Tokyo and also helping them solve what other sort of crisis has led them to relocate, whether it's, you know, they've quit their job or they felt alienated from their friends or they're trying to start a new life or they're worried that they're never going to get married. The two twins basically sort of take them out and show them neighborhoods and also help solve their problems. And what's amazing is every neighborhood is a real neighborhood. Like at the end of the chapter is a a little facts page which shows the various photos of the locations that they visited throughout the chapter and talks about them and when they're open and stuff. So it's educational manga at its most amazing because I'm literally reading it and being like, oh, that's an actual neighborhood now. And so it's the opposite <laughs> that, of... Oh, that that's real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really... It's just, it's fabulous. It's not what you would call low stakes. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not what you would call high stakes. It's super low stakes stuff. It's just heavy on the charm and, uh, the very, very gentle comedy. And, uh, it's, but it's, you know, it's not quite slice of life and it's not really quite, um, you know, character driven manga, but man, it's just great. It's, it's really a fun read. And for people who want something that's, Really offbeat and, but also educational. It was, it's great fun. That, that sounds great. And also, uh, I, I don't want to be, I was going to be mean to me like, not what I expect from you when you bring up manga, <laughs> but, but that's totally where my friend is going. <laughs> hey, I might ask you, yeah. well, have we talked about my brother's husband on this podcast yet? Uh, we have not talked about it. We haven't, t- I've been meaning to pick it up and still haven't. But uh, but yeah, did you end up reading it? Did you? Yeah, well, it was, it was one of the Eisner books. Ah, of course, of course it was. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But when I when we got into, I think I've talked before, like the Eisner Room of Death, where we went in and it was just filled <laughs> with books. Yes. Um, 
a couple of people were like, "Oh, that's that's one you like. You should read first. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's that's amazing. That that's one you should definitely like make a point of like really grabbing and and, and getting as quickly as possible. And it's it's wonderful. Like, mm-hmm. I I, I mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. But what is funny is so one the Eisner. And and I'm gonna have to look up the name of the guy who who did it, um, because Chip Kids accepted the award, and Chip Kids' speech was basically, I can't believe this guy did this touching, emotional comic, because he normally just does porn, <laughs> and I asked him about it, and he basically said the only way I was able to do this was to make the most filthy porn at the same time. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, great. Uh, Gen- oh God, Gengora Tagami. Hmm. Let let let's say that's how you say his name. I'm sure I've completely slaughtered that name, and I apologize previously. Um, but yeah, it was it was the funniest thing because having read this book, mm-hmm. I I honestly can't imagine him doing like <laughs> filthy porn. <laughs> and the idea that like. In order to do this book, he had to do this absolutely disgusting book <laughs> to like work out all the impulses is endlessly hilarious. <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah, that is great. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, so so there you go. We discussed manga, and this time you were the one who got to bring up the crazy porn. Um, some uh, other. No, I, I I I would highly recommend. I I want to say that like i would genuinely i think you would like it mm-hmm. i don't think you'd love it yeah um because it's it's understated and slow for want of a better way of putting it mm-hmm. like I, I can imagine you reading it and being like get on with it <laughs> no i mean that's I just told you a book where it's literally about real estate agents showing people yeah, but, neighborhoods but, graham I guess, but still, there, it feels like there is more... Um, there, there, or something? Yeah, there's more content. There's more uh, differentiated. Because it, it, my brother's husband, I think for necessity of the story, repeats beats a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this, the plot is essentially that um, the, the protagonist's uh, brother has died. The brother's husband arrives from... Canada, I want to say, mm-hmm. uh, because he's 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 never visited uh, Japan before. He he feels the loss, but also that the 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 protagonist has never really come to terms with his uh, homophobia, mm. and it's not extreme or even latent homophobia, mm-hmm. but just seeing how he is like he he panics at the idea of this man spending time with his daughter. Mm. Um, like it really forces him, and also the daughter is, it, like, is just immediately accepting. You know, mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, you're married to my uncle. Of course, I love you." Like, mm-hmm. that's it. It's that simple. And seeing the protagonist be like, "How does she get to do this? Mm-hmm. Like, why? How does she uh, not have the 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 conflict that I feel?" Mm-hmm. But because of that, there's a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of. There's a lot of like, wow, how is she so good at this and I am not? Right, or right. why do I feel the shame? Why can I not accept this man? Mm-hmm. And it's cumulative. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like by the end of the the first book, which is half of the series, 
you're not really where you want to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, there is an element of, like, just for fuck's sake. Like, yes, right. Like, we're all there. We know where this is going. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, you should read it. I think you'd enjoy it. I just don't think you'd love it, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Uh, and, and, and probably matches up with my feelings, which is I've seen it a few times around and I have it earmarked as a, I'm going to check this out from the library rather than a, I'm going to purchase yeah, this. Buy it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's quite interesting. Also, uh, what do you think of Immortal Hulk issue four? Uh, I, I really liked it. I'm very curious where the, the green door thing is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious where the Sasquatch thing is going. Yeah, the Sasquatch thing was interesting. I really enjoyed how, um, how uncomfortable it was, you know, cause yes, of course it's... exactly. But it was uncomfortable even before the quote unquote horror element. Yes. Like when, when, when Walter Lankowski is, is basically just like recounting his past with Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uncomfortable to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. There was something very overbearing about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made me uncomfortable. Yeah. He, he, it, it, Ewing really cleverly. And I was also, I have to say like Bennett, Yes. Ben's art, it's very important in this, plays up the, the overbearing jock nature of Mm -hmm. Lankowski, Mm -hmm. which, which is not traditionally played up at all. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but like Byrne has in the first few, in the first few appearances. Um, but he really, like, Lankowski comes off as so, uh, like quasi jerk that you're never quite sure if he really is. A good guy, if that makes sense. There, there's the quasi jerk, but there's also, I mean, because of the way, um, the way he's introduced on the last page of issue three, there's, you know, there's something a little off about him. And I really liked how well so much of the issue, and again, it's, it's Ewing's language and conception, but I feel like Bennett really does a fabulous job of making the character seem not right, you know? And I, and, and I thought that, so by the, the time you get to the, the ending, of course, that kind of does, um, pay off, but it, it was, it's re- it really, I thought it worked quite well. It really well, was. So, Bennett, Bennett is incredibly important to this book, and that sounds, yeah. on the one hand, it's, it's a comic, but, when you look through everything that's happened to this point in the comic, because mm-hmm. um, re- after reading issue four, I went back and reread the, the earlier issues, mm. and Bennett's framing of the Hulk mm-hmm. is fascinating. Yeah, the Hulk is always too big for the frame he's in. Mm-hmm. Always mm. to the point where you even get in issue one two double page spreads, one after another. Mm-hmm. Of and in both of those double page spreads, mm-hmm. the Hulk is too big for that spread. Mm. Mm. You know, and then you get later on the issue where he's facing down the gunman who killed the girl in the store. Right. Um, he's, he's, like, he's, he's, uh, his very physicality is threatening. Mm-hmm. 
And you get that with Lankowski in issue four as well. Mm. There's something about Lankowski's yeah. physical presence on the page mm-hmm. that is just a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a little, like, too big. Yeah. Just a little, like, smiling too much. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something that is just like, yeah, you're, you're not quite right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, it, it is. There's something about it, about the way that they're off and in a, in a way that ties them together. That's a, that's a great point. And of course, in this, in this particular issue, because there aren't that many, there's a lot of flashback appearances of Banner, but not a lot of the Hulk. The, the one page where he basically shows up is so effectively done. Like, he's, he really does, creep you out it's just basically a scene where he's seen more or less at a distance and then and then his eyes sort of fall on the characters who are trying to more or less hide from him and it falls on us as well and it was it was a really disquieting page i really i know that you know from what you've said that that things are going to really change up on the book but i do hope that it keeps some of the lingering the the horror aspect of well, I, if anything, I think it's going to lean further into the horror aspect because yeah. what established about the Green Door, mm-hmm. honestly, to me, seemed like a sign that it was going to go from, you know, quasi superhero book. And I mean, the Avengers are supposed to show up in a couple of issues or next issue, right? Uh, but I think it's going to go from that into like full on horror mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because especially the end of this issue mm-hmm. is, you know. Is something you'd see in a vertical book and not in a Marvel book. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So good. It's good, good stuff. I, I assume it, that it's, people are. It's great stuff. Yeah. I, something I, I, I uh, put on the Way What Tumblr this week um, was the Ultimates stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, you're in the Travel Foreman's Ultimates Squared or Ultimates 2. Right. Um, and. The I I know I think we talked about this last time that you haven't read it, mm-hmm. um, but it strikes me that Ewing is working through, intentionally or otherwise, Ewing is working through the different genres of Marvel. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So like Ultimates is is Marvel Cosmic, mm-hmm. and now you know Immortal Hulk is Marvel Horror, mm-hmm. and. I, I, someone on Twitter, and I wish I could remember who did the, who said this, had the, the banner from, from Doom of Dracula that said something like, America's number one fear book. Not <laughs> horror book, fear book. Mm. Uh, and I saw that and I was like, that's the Immortal Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. It's the number one fear book. That's the best way to put it. Because <laughs> it's, it's just, it continues to be every single issue creepy. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Like it, it's 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 actually a book that you finish and you're like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. So far, like I, I genuinely think it's a creepy book. Mhm. And, and and I love it. Mhm. But it's a book that every single issue I finish, and I it feels uncomfortable. Mm. 
you know, which is which is amazing, which is wonderful that a comic can can have that response, and especially that a comic can have that response issue after issue after issue. Right, right. Well, but, it, um, is, it what, is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say one of the things that the the Green Door aspect, which is, I mean, I wouldn't say this is the second or third time it's been mentioned, mm-hmm. and it's the first time it's it's been um, theoretically explained. Mm-hmm. Um, it really reminds me of the mythology of the Invisibles. Hmm. Whereas the mythology of the, of the Invisibles had, you know, in the first storyline, they were like Barbalith, and everyone's like, "What's Barbalith?" And then they kept on, you know, basically explaining more of the cosmology. Mm-hmm. They they said, you know, there's also, you know, there's the there's, and I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but essentially like the the underside, mm-hmm. like the, the the insect realm, because because human, uh, the reality is is the hologram what happens when these two realms intersect. Mm. And so Barbalist is the positive and there's also this negative. Um, and I remember when that was coming out, when I was reading that, that felt creepy in the same way that this did. Mm. Mm. That there was something about, I, I remember really clearly, there's, uh, the, uh, maybe the second or maybe the first Quimper arc. Of, of the invisibles. And it's basically the idea that like everyone is getting corrupted. Mm-hmm. And no one realizes that apart from the reader, but everyone is getting corrupted. Mm-hmm. And there was something genuinely disturbing to me about that. Uh, that like really made me feel uncomfortable and, and, and in many ways like corrupted by the comic myself. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, that there's, there's something of that in the immortal Hulk. Oh, that, interesting. That when, when he t- when they were introducing the the green door and they're essentially saying oh it, like through that is demons through through that is evil mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I had this weird visceral reaction where I was like nope nope <laughs> don't don't like don't talk about the green door again right don't no ixney <laughs> well that's fabulous that's that's like the best so um. Yeah. So I'm listening. You creeped me the fuck out. It's a short <laughs> version. Yeah, it's uh it's 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 a it's a it's a damn good read. It's a damn good read. So, yeah. And I think really I think that might be it for the stuff I want to blab about cuz there's a few other things that I read that I was left a little underwhelmed by. That I just didn't feel like shit talking this time around. So, <laughs> Oh, Jeff, what's happened to shit talking? <laughs> I just, I, I like to have a balance. There's times where I was very much like, I want to stick to the positive side of things here if I can. So let's have that happen. Let's have that yeah, happen. Let's, let's not do the shit talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said before, like I've been reading a lot of X-Men mm-hmm. and I've been reading a bunch of 2080. Right. Um, I, I did er- the very early dreads, like the very first ones. Which are hilariously off model looking back at it. Right. Uh, and just, I mean, in ways that seem genuinely stunning now. Mm-hmm. Like Dredd as undoubtedly hero, loved by his city, who doesn't kill people. Yeah. Right. No, like the, the, I want to say it's first or second story, I think it's first, where the worst punishment Dredd can give mm-hmm. is by sticking someone in a permanent traffic island. Perfect, permanent traffic island, yeah, that's the first story and it's, it's you know, kind of great, it's, yeah. But it's like, it's so crazy looking at it from now, you know? Mm-hmm. There's another story where, uh, it's, it's the first, like, multi-part arc, where 
Dread resigns because the other judges don't take him seriously. Oh right. And then, and then they're like, um, you know, the, like Dread turns out to be right because of course he is. He's the he's the protagonist of the story. Right. And they're like, who will save us? Our best judge has quit. And he literally stands in the doorway and like, is like, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so hilariously melodramatic. Yeah. And, and undread now. Yes. You know? That is just absolutely fascinating and, and hilarious to read. Especially considering it's by John Wagner, who does it now. Right. Well, they're they're still finding their niche there. I mean, that's the thing that's wonderful about those early dreads, you know, is is like you said, because it is so off off. uh, And it's fascinating to me how much Mills is really um, some of his story stuff. Like he he contributes key pieces to the mythology, the mythos really early on, but he also kind of has like such a shockingly different take. Like his yes. his take on dread is way more closer far closer to the the Marvel superhero template, um in many ways, which I think is really kind of kinda of interesting. Does it doesn't well, always work fasc- out. It's fascinating that like Mills, who I would say is is more, uh, maybe not then, but now is more politically along the lines of like all cops are inherently evil, right? Is the one who writes Dread as a hero, like mm-hmm. explicitly, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Dread is loved by his city when Mills write him, yeah. and he, he does the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's. I mean, again, maybe things were different for him in the 1970s. <laughs> But but it's it's so strange to see Mills be the one who writes Dread as a more horror character. Well, you know the thing that I think is interesting is is that how do I put it? I think Mills Mills' role in helping assemble Dread and the pieces of Dread are like he's got a very. I don't know how to put it. He doesn't have. He just doesn't quite connect with the character. Like in that sense of, he's like you said. He sees him as a hero, which is not necessarily where he's going. He would Mills would necessarily put where he would go now. Although I think that it it's probably worth saying that Mills is a. He's he's way. He's way more. He's way more um, interested in class warfare, I suppose. You know what I mean. So as long as Dread is sort of sufficiently like a man of the people by being just sort of a regular working class Joe, uh, you know, that's more or less good enough for Mills, I think. You know, as opposed to, and again, as he points, I think he points out. You know, when you look at stuff like Nemesis the Warlock, like, Mills also really has, his axes to grind have a lot more to do with religion and organized religion than I think it necessarily, like, I don't, I, I just don't think he's, he, he's just not as into the character or the idea, either in a positive or negative way, you know, as Wagner is, who's like, I'm, you know, is, is basically conceived both of those sides and f- can miraculously figure out a way to accentuate them both, you know? 
very, very quiet, Graham. Are you? Did you mute yourself? Did I like kill you? You know my... what? I totally did, and I he was me making a long point. I didn't realize I'd muted myself. <laughs> Damn it! Okay, here's the short version of what I was saying. Okay. Um, not only have I been reading that, I've been rereading Rogue Trooper. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because of the movie announcement. Right. Um, and because and Rogue Trooper is the best. Rogue Trooper is amazing. Yeah. Right. But also. Rogue Trooper is also terrible, which is its charm. Mm. The the fact that the bad guys are clearly just like quasi disguised space Nazis mm-hmm. is is wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah, like it and it, uh, Jerry Finley Day just stealing from like real life wars and just being like, oh, but fuck, they're in space, whatever. Yes, exactly. It's the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. And then his plots are all, and as increasingly as this, as the series goes on, get like hilariously sloppy. Mm-hmm. There's one where, I swear to God, Rogue is talking in his sleep. <laughs> and what he says in his sleep upsets the biochips so much that they're like, maybe we won't help him fight back when he's about to be ambushed. <laughs> and then he wakes up and he's like, oh shit, they must have heard me talking in my sleep. I'll tell him a different story. It's it's amazing. Wow, that's genius. I mean, really, wait, that's just it. It is genius, but also it's shit. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like it's a special level of genuinely wonderful craftsmanship over an astonishing shit. Mm. That you're like, this is this is some amazing work. It helps massively by the fact that like Dave Gibbons, Cam Kennedy, Mike McMahon, yeah. like Brett Youtz. You know, they're all doing the art, and it just looks... I mean, uh, Jose Ortiz, mm. Carl Milson, that book just, you know, the run just looks amazing. Yeah. But, you know, when you analyze the stories, it really... it's It starts off as a patchwork of, of you know, Earth War stories that he's just like, fuck it, they're wearing spacesuits. Yes. One of them's blue. It's science fiction. Yeah. And, like, manages to somehow slip from that <laughs> into, like, more genericism. Yeah. And... Continues to work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, sorry. I, we got off track because you were actually making a long point about Dread, right? That, that... I can't even remember that. <laughs> <laughs> poor Graham, poor Graham. Yeah. Look, I put myself on mute by mistake. I'm sure everyone would have been thrilled, but <laughs> I've never quite managed it. <laughs> Yeah, I you know I think I I, I mentioned like the the fact that Rogue is going to be a movie I'm like that's fantastic but there is a little part of me that's brokenhearted that it's not like a TV miniseries in that sense you know right because well that's just it like Rogue has uh, a mission mm-hmm. you know uh, he's hunting for the Trader General right. and you could you can do that for a long time yeah but I'm not sure you can do it as a movie without finding the traitor general at the end. Well, but also for me, what I would love to do with the series is actually have flashback sequences with the chip characters back when they're human, you know, or, you know, and so infantrymen. Yeah, exactly. When they're, when they're also troopers and then set all that up so that you can really, you, you can, build those characters and have them set up conflicts that then more or less have to resolve after they're dead, you know, as chips. I mean, it's, there's just like, 
the thing that is astounding to me about Rogue Trooper is just what an amazing big bag of possibilities it is. Every time I read this stuff, you know, um, and well, but that's it. Like, there's so much of that in in so many of those early 2008 scripts. Absolutely, absolutely. It, that's... You know, Strontium Dog is just filled with possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and it's it's interesting. It's one of the things in in Mills's book. Uh, he goes on to talk about the sort of the frustration of you know like when you create an idea for 2008 it was like you can't just he's like you needed anywhere from a month to eight weeks to nail everything down you know and he's like you weren't goofing off you were literally world building and coming up with you know ideas and concepts and a direction and 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 it it really does show in those early books, you know. It really does. Mm. It's mm. it's kind of interesting and frustrating that it's sort of that the system is is different in so many ways now. So, but we're just old, Jeff. We are, aren't we? I thank thanks, Graham, for underscoring that. Uh, is there any sort of news crapola that you wanted to touch on or any other books? Or, I mean, in theory, we've, we've hit like the two hour mark and. What is particularly frustrating is there was a news story and I honestly can't remember what it was, mm-hmm. but there was something that I was like, oh, I, I want to talk to Jeff about this. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we were professional enough to actually like take note of, of what was <laughs> happening and I remember this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm very quickly scrolling back in, in, in headlines and see if I can find it. Mm-hmm. No, you saw the the Marvel Conan announcement, right? The Marvel, the Co- Conan announcement. Oh, it's so funny because it sounded like you said Clonin, and I'm like, oh my god, Clonin the Barbarian? No, that's amazing. There's a title right there. No, no, no. Uh, I they have now announced two. So they announced the the hardcover omnibuses of the original Marvel material. Right. Uh, in June, and now they've announced two additional trade lines of the Dark Horse material. Wow, really? Yeah. So it's going to be three separate lines of reprints. Um, well, for people also, uh, you know, Dark Horse is dumping that stuff for super stupid cheap, which has led to some serious hand-wringing on my part. Because it's like, were you were you a Conan fan? I I am. I'm I'm a Conan fan. In fact, I've got a lot of the the Thomas stuff on the Dark Horse app, which because I never use the goddamn app, I'm like, ugh, I should just buy this shit <laughs> for Comicsology <laughs> now that it's cheap and just take the hit and have Graham make fun of me because it's because the volumes are. I mean, first off, for people who want the Kurt Busiek material. Like those, tr- those the Dark Horse is dropping those Omnibuy for like three ninety nine a pop, and they're four hundred plus pages. They're like five hundred page, you know, Omnibuy that that are going for crazy cheap. The the Thomas stuff, of course, is um, uh, not nearly as uh, cost effective. It's still pretty good, but it's like you know anywhere from like. I want to say five to eight issues of of his material. So, um, yeah, no, I'm super excited about that stuff. I I really do adore um, Thomas's run on that stuff, and went back and revisited for a while. I was rereading it again in the 
the Dark Horse app and got up to like the, I don't know, the low 30s or something and was really enjoying it. So, um, Are, it's, it's, like the character, or is it the, is it nostalgia? I guess is what I'm asking. Like it, it's uh, when Marvel launches their new Conan books, are you going to be picking them up? Uh, well, I'm a fan of the character. I suspect that it is largely rooted in nostalgia. I picked up a few issues uh, when Dark Horse had the material of Busiek and I think it was Carrie Nord stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and it didn't really fry my burger, so I kind of put it back down. Um, I think that it's very much the character hit me at the right way and the right time when I was young. Uh, and again, this was, this was even Basima. This was not, um, uh, Barry Smith's work, uh, which was, which everyone just lost their shorts over. And, uh, uh, I, I think for the, at the time and the person that I was, Conan was kind of a great character because he's sort of, um, you know, I'd read The Hobbit and I really enjoyed it, and then I moved on to like uh, the the Fellowship of the Ring, and I was bored to tears. Holy crap, I was bored. <laughs> and Conan is such a great antidote to that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not boring, and Conan is just pure ego fantasy, like clearly Robert E. Howard's ego fantasy, but he's kind of a great character in that it's more or less told to you he's going to go through life and he's going to be play all these different roles and that's something that I think is for me was tremendously appealing and I still kind of have a little bit of that that sort of that that really delights me I like the fact that you can pick up like the King Conan trades, you know what I mean? Like they've got the stories that, you know, Howard wasn't able to fully, you know, move across that timeline because of course he, you know, decided to take himself out relatively early on. But Thomas is completely like, Oh yeah, I, I'll just take this Bran Mac Morn story or this Cole story, King Cole story, and I'll change it to a King Conan tale or, you know, here's a bunch of notes that L. Sprague de Camp found, you know, underneath, you know, the Howard's ancestral tobacco patch. And I'll I'll turn that into an actual story, even though it's just something that, like, Howard wrote on the back of, like, his shirt cardboard or something. And um, I just, I like the fact that, that the world, such as it is, is explored by this one character in a way that you learn about it and then as he continues to grow and in theory the world around him can and should and does also grow like that seemed really cool to me and it also it seemed to have a it hinted at a more fluid dynamic than the sort of um, it makes I was gonna say then 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 the sort of static trap superheroes had fallen into, but I hadn't realized that that superheroes had fallen into the static trap. In fact, it's arguable yeah, yeah. that that the comic creators at Marvel hadn't realized that yet either in, in some ways. So so yeah, it just it was it 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 totally worked for me at the time, and I think revisiting that I have a lot of like. This scratches an imaginary itch that I have, which is, you know, sort of the way that nostalgia can work. And whenever I read, read, you know, later Conan stuff or even to an extent Howard's Conan, I'm always like, 
it's okay. Like yeah, exactly, it but it's not it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing exactly. Then the real thing for me really does exist in that perfect, you know, the corner the Venn diagram cornerstone of nostalgia and my imagination as much as what's on the page and the fact that it's kind of where I really fell in love with uh John Pasima's work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where those circles overlap. So, so yeah, I don't the idea that they're going to bring back Conan and Jason Aaron's going to jump on it with Ed McGinnis or whatever. Like, I mean, I I don't know if that's what they're going to do. I, I was going to say, imagine. like, I think you literally just made up that creative team. Yeah, I totally so, did. Yeah, everyone who's listening, Jeff has Jeff is just not largely. Well, it's not true. Maybe you do know something that the rest of us don't. <laughs> but there's been no announcements. Yeah, I'll say that much. Yeah, no, there isn't. I just. It's pretty hard looking at the arc of Aaron's work where he wouldn't be like, yeah, I want, I want to crack at that character, you know. So it's funny you said Epicenter because I was like, oh no, it's Isad Ribic. <laughs> See, and this is the thing, Isad Ribic makes a ton of sense. There's a whole bunch of other people that do, but I really do hope that it's that it's Guinness or. You know, someone like Tradmore or just a bunch of guys where it, where it's going to be, because this is the thing, like, I, like everyone else, love the absolutely beautiful uh, covers, Frank Frazetta covers that, that were done for the Conan paperbacks. And I get the people love the, ooh, like, it's so beautiful looking, you know. Yes, but truly. Yeah, exactly. But 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 man, is there a lot to be said for somebody who just likes drawing muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles, um, drawing it in someone that so they look ridiculously absurd holding a battle axe that is literally larger than a regular human being. You know that just I honestly feel like you you are describing Frazetta there. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, exactly. Frazetta can do that, but of course he also captures all the rest of that sort of beautiful sleekness, but then everyone else just plays a little too strongly to the sleek for me. Like you said, Reback, like you said, totally, I see what he looks like. I'm like, oh yeah, that would be beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, but no, just the, ugh, no. Anyway, so yeah, the Conan stuff. that was not the the news story I was I was thinking about. I I did find it. Um, Motor Crush disappearing and then becoming a series of graphic novels. Oh wow! Did you see this? I did not see that news. No. So it broke originally as Motor Cross is going on immediate hiatus. Wow. Uh, issue twelve, which is supposed to come out next month, had been cancelled. Holy uh, shit! And then and then the book was going on hiatus, and then after that story was reported uh, on Newsarama. Babs Har on Twitter was like, mm, this, this is wrong. We're just going straight to collections. Hmm. So, so volume three is going to be out next year. Hmm. Uh, and she said, like explicitly said something like, you know, I'm so glad not to be doing it in 22 page chunks anymore. Hmm. Um, but you know, this comes on the heel of saga, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it something we haven't talked about, but Lazarus is also changing formats. Oh shit. Really? Lazarus, Lazarus is becoming, I want to say it's a quarterly. Wow. Um, where it's going to be, I think it's 64 pages or something, mm-hmm. an issue. Hmm. Um, and I want to say there's another book that, that's, it's, that's, that's uh, another image book 
that's basically like you know stopping being a monthly. Wow. Um, what's going on? <laughs> right. That's the question. What's going on? Um, well, do you have a theory, Graham? I can throw out I a don't. theory, but I, um, I, I, I mean, I have, I have probably the same theories that you could throw out, but well, I don't like, I, I don't have any inside gossip. Yeah, yeah. I of course never have any inside gossip. Uh, yeah. My my theory would just be that that yeah, there's people who are staring down the barrel of burnout. They're trying to figure out a way to work around that. And or I think that they figured out that if they essentially just move to trades or trade like, um, you know, chunks that they can see enough money from it to basically make it worth their like they won't they'll still make enough money to actually be able to for it to be viable. Like I can see I can see the idea that that Rucka and Lark, for example, have talked to their audience or heard from enough of their audience members that they're like, most of these people are just, the majority of our audience is trade, are is trade waiting. So why don't we just skip straight to the trade? We've been around long enough that we're not going to be a strange name in the marketplace. So why not make this jump and have it be a situation that Rather, you know, they're not seeing nearly as much money up front from the the issue by issue serialization, so they're like, let's just do it this way, and let's, you know, we can we can make just as much money or like far less of a cut, but we'll also give ourselves a lot more breathing room than the than the monthly deadlines. So, oh yeah, that's that's where I'm at. I'm mm-hmm. at wondering if. Image creators are basically looking at the monthly format and realizing this doesn't work for us financially. Yeah, yeah. And 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 what do we do? Right. Yeah, which is which is fascinating. Uh, it's really a fascinating situation because you know I, I'm still super like Wasaga. I'm super hand wringy about it. Like if you guys do that, it's you, I really hope that you've measured it or figured out ways to more or less keep your names alive in the marketplace and or realizing you have to, at that point, do some super, super active promotion. Because I, I don't know. I just, we'll see how it works. I'm fascinated that the marketplace is getting more to that point. It could also be, could well be the idea that they're like, yeah, if we do a book, like there's a strong enough book marketplace that we can actually release our material more or less as OGNs and get, you know, again, enough of an income that we're not, you know, and possibly even a bigger income you know, because we only have to push something once a year rather than more or less every month and then trying to promote the trade every six months, twice a year, however it works out, you know? I honestly wonder what the book market is like for image books. I mean, to be completely brutally honest, I'm shocked as hell if the book market is better than the single issue market for Motor Crush. Oh, yeah. I I abs I totally agree and I suspect like I don't know I haven't really it's so funny you know um 
Brian Hibbs, of course, every year digs into the book scan numbers and really does a lot of number crunching. And I wish, I feel like the the column that he did, which is only like, I don't know, three or four months ago, I think, breaking down yeah. those stats, uh, I really skimmed through it way too quickly because I, I didn't really get a strong sense of where Image stands because, honestly, it's very much like Walking Dead saga and then everything else. You know what I mean? But yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. It is... I would I would be really curious as to uh, yeah as to what's happening if people just give it a couple of years and they're like you know what it is too hard to write my own books and promote my own books and bring the books to market you know and keep writing and keep fresh you know and also be available to to take on the next big thing that comes my way you know like, I'm literally I'm looking at Hibbs's column right now. Oh, good. Uh, the top-selling image books uh, in the book market. Mm-hmm. Saga is number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, volume seven, the newest release, scores forty-five thousand copies. Wow. Uh, Walking Dead is number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, volume twenty-seven is thirty-six thousand. Mm-hmm. Paper Girls is number three, I guess. Huh. 20,000 20, for volume one. Mm-hmm. Um, Monstrous is number... No, there's a number There's a number two or number three somewhere else that he's not mentioning then. Mm. Unless maybe Saga takes two spots. Um, because he says number four is Monstrous. And that makes uh, twenty four thousand copies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, interestingly enough, only other image volumes pulling sales of over ten thousand in twenty seventeen mm-hmm. is Snot Girl. Wow, interesting, huh? So yeah, who who knows? So like that seems. That seems, yeah, it seems like it's really not necessarily the the book market, you know? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I let's see. When when was the last issue of Motocrush out? And I'm going to look at how many issues it sold in the direct market. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. The last issue was apparently out on April um, because, you know, Motocrush has to sell more than 10,000 copies in the direct market, right? I yes yeah I think so but You'd I don't think know. I maybe it doesn't like right. that's just it right motor no it doesn't really wow yeah hmm. the last session motor crush was just eleven mm-hmm. uh, and according to Comicron it uh, sold ele- uh, four thousand ooh four thousand three hundred and forty really huh well I gotta say if they're <laughs> It would make a lot more sense if they were canceling the series, I guess, at 4,340, particularly when you take that and divvy it up among, you know, three creators. Like, that's... Ay, ay, ay. Well, who knows what's, who knows what's happening? So may, so maybe trade sales will, will get a bump if that's the only way it's coming out? I don't know, I just, it feels, 
astonishingly counterintuitive to me. It's super counterintuitive to the way that the marketplace usually works in the sense of if you talk to someone who's like a strong old school direct market representative like Hibbs, he's like, you give us the monthly to sell every month and it keeps your name alive in front of the readers. And then when the trade comes out, they're like, oh yeah, the trade, you know, but it's like, you need the people coming into the market, but you also need to keep that awareness so that they're always seeing a new cover, you know, even if they don't pick it up to the point where they're like, oh, okay, this is, I'll put this on, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the trade and see what's going on here, you know, but yeah, I, it could just well be that they, they were like, why is this thing, you know, maybe there's some vast discrepancy where they're selling 4,000, you know, copies uh, in the direct market of the single issues and they're getting something like, I don't know, 18 to 22,000 copies in the direct marketplace of their trades. And they're like, well, fuck it. We'll just go with that then, you know? Well, now I have to look at, let's see. First volume <laughs> of Motor Crush came out in June last year. Yeah. And so I'm sure its sales would be probably somewhat robust. I mean, as you know, it was, I want to say it was like, the Comics Experience Graphic Novel Club pick, I think, that point. So, which I... It, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. in, this, in the first month of the re- release, mm-hmm. in the direct market, it sold 5,000 copies. The the trade? The collection. Oh, wow. Huh. Interesting. Well, so yeah, 5,000 a month, if maybe maybe they have sustained sales by that sort of thing, you know? Right. Let's let's look in the let's look in the next month. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, you're so good at this. This is fabulous. Uh, uh, let's see. <laughs> Five thousand first month. What do you think it sold in the second month, Jeff? Twenty seven hundred. Four hundred eighty two. Holy shit! Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Then this is not making any sense to me whatsoever. I have no idea what they're doing. What they're doing? Unless it's like literally a. You know, yeah, we're we're walking away from this one, but we're gonna make it sound like we're not. So, you know, it's like we're gonna move direct to the trade, not direct to trades, but we're like we're putting the whole collection. Like instead of publishing issue twelve, we're just gonna like fold the last issue into the collection and goodbye. So, huh. yeah, it, it, I'll, I'll be very curious if there's a volume four. Put it that way. Yeah. Wow. 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 Hmm. Well, Graham McMillan, well done for coming up with some sort of news story that has completely baffled me. That's uh, that's that's some really interesting stuff. And again, just does point with, man, I feel like I feel like Image, just by the nature of the way that it's organized and run and why it works the way that it does, like it has periods where it's a big chunk of the marketplace, and now I'm like. It's got to be, I mean, this is the thing, like, Walking Dead is still being published, but its sales have dropped significantly over the last two years, right? Uh, I want to say Walking Dead's still a top ten book, Jeff. Well, it's still a top ten book, but the difference between it selling what used to be, you know, 60, 65,000 copies of Walking Dead on the reg is dropped down, I thought, like in the forty thousands, and the trade Walking sales. Dead, Walking Dead sold seventy-one thousand copies in June. Oh, well, 
I must be talking out my ass. I had heard that the trade sales had also dropped off, but I'm well, I, yeah, well, I, according to Hibbs, at least in the bookstore market, the trade sales have dropped. But it, you know, number two book image is, is not as good as number one, but still pretty good. Yeah, totally. And man, again, for for people playing the home game, seventy thousand copies of like an indie comic is 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 some pretty substantial hay, like. Kirkman's got a lot of people to feed on the Skybound line, but um, you know, not not nearly as much as DC does. So wow, right? Uh, Walking Dead, yeah, it seems to be settled around like seventy-two thousand. Wow, wow, which is pretty good. So I'm going to look at sales in like summer 2016 and see if it has fallen. Mm-hmm. Something you can't hear, by the way, Jeff, and I just have to share is. I think they're doing like a, a an outside screening of the sound of music. No, tonight. wow! Because I keep hearing like people singing sound of music songs like in the distance. It's That's amazing! amazing. Wow! So right now they're doing High on the Hill with Lonely Goat Herd. Wong did yet, yeah, Jeff. Like summer 2016, it was at 71,000. So it's been pretty consistent. Wow. Okay. Well, I I am happy to eat my words at least as far as the single issues are concerned. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. That's I mean that's really impressive. That yeah. that's consistency. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so so hush my mouth, basically, is I think what we're saying. Closing time, time to close up shop. Or are you going to do the semi-sonic song now? Oh God, I have to figure out another way to phrase what I'm phrasing. <laughs> oh God. Uh, it is closing time. Sadly, I can't even remember the first line of that semi-sonic song. Otherwise, I would just uh, do a spoken word transition at the very least. Oh God. People, we uh, be grateful. Be so grateful. It could have turned out so much worse. Please remember that when you listen to this sort of um, desultory ending. Desultory, really? The, <laughs> fuck me. I was going to say that there's show notes for this episode at waywellpodcast.com. I was going to direct you to <laughs> our Instagram.com forward slash waywellpod, the Tumblr, waywellpods.tumblr.com, and our Twitter account at waywellpodcast. Jeff has a Twitter account at lazybastid at L A Z Y B A S T I D. And Jeff, as we're recording, what is your Twitter name? Uh, lazybastid, L A Z Y B A S T I D. Like your, like your, your display name. Oh, my display name right now is Tom Cruise's stunt double's stunt double. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Yes, I love that. Um, I'm Graham M. at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we have a Patreon. Jeff, would you like to tell everyone about the Patreon? I really do. I really want to very much. But people, remember when I said at the beginning that I had taken a muscle relaxant and it was going to make me stupid and unable to finish my sentences? Well, Has it kicked in? Yeah, probably everyone, go back and see if you can figure out when that actually happened. Some people will say three months into the podcast, people are like, only about two minutes before he started trying to talk about the fine uh, people who support us uh, on Patreon, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, to whom we're especially grateful for their continuing support of this podcast and for allowing me to get to the end of the sentence without just tapering off and staring into distance blankly. Graham? You did that remarkably quickly and in, like succinctly. <laughs> Jeff, I, my hat is off to you. <laughs> we are going to be back with a Baxter building. Yes. Uh, in, is it next week? I think it, is. it is. It is next week. Yes, we'll be back next week with the Baxter building. 
Uh, we are doing issues I can't remember. Yeah, right? I can't either. Uh, do you want me to yeah, jump over uh, there? We're, no, we're going to be doing issues 37... I want to say 371 or 381, but I could be wrong. That sounds right to me. That sounds right. Hey, those are the issues you should be reading, everyone. That's all I'm saying. Because <laughs> uh, you're, you're going to... You, Tom's about to go follow Ryan and stuff for issues or like Pringles. You, you, once you pop, you just can't stop. <laughs> well, you took the buzzer relax, and I'm the one saying that shit. We will be back <laughs> next week. Until then, Jeff. Bye!